York's talk station with the king of New York. Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. Nothing can ever replace the warmth of your tender. What an amazing song by Connie Francis. None better. That epitomizes uh, Mother's Day. And as busy as I've been, and I'm sure many of you have been, and the weather has been miserable, raining, raining, overcast, damp, dreary. When I heard Joe Piscopo actually break from his normal format of playing Frank Sinatra classics, it's the Joe Piscopo Frank Sinatra extravaganza every Sundays from 6 to 8, uh, sponsored by Ramsey Mazza. You don't want to miss it. In fact, if you did tonight, it's really super spectacular. you got to get it on podcast at wabcradio.com. That's wabcradio.com. You can see all the podcasts of all of our hosts and hostesses here at WABC. And then the specialty ones that we have, like the one that I do each and every week uh, involving my oldest son, Anthony. And yours truly, it's called Father and Son, the Anthony and Curtis podcast. But I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever heard Joe Piscopo better in playing the different Frank Sinatra tunes, but also talking about Mother's Day. At a certain point, he had on our owners and operators of uh, Red Apple Media, our parent company here at WABC, the number one news talk station in the nation now that it's dusk, being heard in 38 states, parts of Canada, parts of Europe, and yes, right down to Davy Jones's locker, the Bermuda Triangle. And um, they were both reminiscing, Margot Katsimatidis, about her mother there in the Midwest uh, in Indiana, Indiana girl, Indianapolis, and then John Katsimatidis talking about his mother, his Greek mother. And it was capped off uh, a song or two later by Joe Piscopo playing my all-time favorite, Connie Francis, Mama. And uh, I don't get that emotional. I'm not an emotional guy. Uh, I don't even remember crying when my father passed or my mother passed because I knew it was coming. You could see it didn't happen Immediately, there's a lot of suffering involved for both, uh, but eventually they went in peace in their 90s and they lived a great life. But when I hear that song, it immediately hearkened me back to my mother, Francesca, who was the anchor of our lives in the Sliwa household because my father, Chester, was a merchant seaman and he was away eight months of the year sailing around the world for 54 years 
And when he was home, he was home four straight months. So we had a lot, a lot of attention from our father. But it was really uh, our mother, Francesca, who was the anchor in the Sliwa household. And uh, I remember she would be playing Perry Como. She loved Perry Como on TV, wearing his sweaters, his variety show. And ironically, she loved Bobby Vinton, the Polish prince. You know, Roses uh, are Red, My Friend, Violets are Blue. Great classical songs. It was only years later that I made linkage that my mother Francesca had not even made. The Perry Como... And Bobby Vinton came out of the same town in Pennsylvania, way out in western Pennsylvania, about 20 miles outside of Pittsburgh, a little bucolic town called Cannonsburg. There's only about 10,000 people there. What is the analytics, the possibility that these two great crooners would have come out of little small town America and then dominated the musical scene uh, until the day the Perry Como died in Florida, and Bobby Vinton still lives and still performs. And I had no idea that Bobby Vinton looked up to Perry Como in town, wanted to be just like Perry Como, and then when Perry Como left to find his fame and fortune in New York and Los Angeles, Bobby Vinton followed and ended up living in the same town out in Long Island. I learned all of that only because my mother loved Perry Como with the sweaters. And she loved Bobby Vinton, and back then you had the Victrola. Remember how we had the Victrola, ladies and gentlemen? This had the 13-inch RCA, if you were lucky, color TV, but for most of us it was black and white. And then the Victrola is where you would play your vinyl. And my mother, while doing the chores in the house, while watching uh, my older sister, Alita, my younger sister, Maria, and of course me, uh, would play those songs whenever she could on the Victrola. It was... I mean, that song just harkened me back. It also harkened me back to uh, what was a very nostalgic weekend. Outstanding uh, Cousin Brucey show, 6 to 10 on Saturdays, followed by Tony Orlando from 10 to 12, but especially Cousin Brucey because when he was going through uh, playing his uh, panoply of songs, reminded me of the interview he recently did with Connie Francis, who's still alive. And Connie Francis was saying that there was only one big mistake she made in her life, that the love of her life was Bobby Darren, who was writing songs for her at the time. I mean, Bobby Darren, who died at such a young age, who went to Bronx High School of Science, Bronx boy, uh, was successful as a writer, jingles, but obviously as a singer. I mean, multi-talented. Would have replaced, no doubt, Frank Sinatra if he hadn't been taken from all of us at such a young age because... Uh, He had uh, rheumatic uh, fever, all kinds of heart issues at a very young age. But she said the biggest mistake she ever made was that Bobby, excuse me, that Bobby Darren said he wanted to elope because he knew that her father would not permit that. And being the good, dutiful daughter, she went to her father and says, look, I I really love Bobby Vinton. I don't want to have to elope with him. And he turned to her and said... If I ever see you with him again, I will find him. I will bend his legs and stuff it in his pocket. And they didn't see one another again. Imagine so many years later to reminisce that that was the love of her life, the mistake that she had made that she could never forget. And all of these memories came cresting back this Mother's Day weekend. 
as miserable as it was with the weather, the rain, damp, unlike what Mays generally are. But then to light up the nostalgic flame that I know was so important to all of you. And in thinking about my mother, Francesca, who's no longer with us, I know that many of you, you're fortunate enough to have your mother or your grandmothers with you, your wives, your girlfriends, whoever, whoever the mother is of your children. And to probably for the most part, unless it was a mommy dearest kind of situation, you know, <laughs> with Joan Crawford, it's not going to be positive memories for you. But for the most part, the memories with mommy were always good. The memories with daddy, ah, meds and meds and poco poco, <laughs> depending on what day uh, dad gave you a, a beat down or hit you so hard, your mother felt the vibrations. But I immediately looked at the front page of Sunday's New York Times. You don't get a double hernia schlepping it home any longer because it's much thinner than it used to be. But above the fold was my nemesis early on when I started the Guardian Angels in 1979 as a night manager of Mickey D's in the Bronx, then Mayor Ed Koch. And there was an expose about Ed Koch, who's been dead for years about how he had led a secret gay life and they were drudging up uh, a lot of uh, dredging up a lot of situations that had occurred with him and I said why why is this happening now 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 remember I had no love for Ed Koch Ed Koch uh, when he was man did not like me did not like the guardian angels uh his uh public relations guy his uh the guy who controlled all the media coming out of the Koch administration, George Arts, was my nemesis. Uh, he had a deputy mayor, uh, who uh, Herb Rickman, who was thought was uh, his lover. Although, according to this article, it turns out that he was not. But it didn't matter. They were all pile-driving me. And then the transit police at that time uh, were just just making our lives miserable. I was getting arrested every other weekend, ending up on Rikers Island some of the time. We'll talk about that later on as another suicide takes place on Rikers Island and the federal government is ready to take it over and put it into receivership as they're saying, hey, Eric Adams, what are you doing about Rikers Island? It's been four months. We'll talk about that later on. But at that time, as I was getting locked up and criticized and vilified and demonized in the media, he's a vigilante, he's a gang member, he's a cult leader. Sort of like that figure in um, the cult classic, The Warriors, Cyrus. You know, who had summoned all the gang members to Van Cortland Park, the northernmost area of the Bronx before you get into uh, Woodhaven, Yonkers. And he had convinced all the gangs that there were more gang members than cops. <laughs> Somewhat similar to today. And he said, you know, we could unite and we could take over the city. And back then, they could. 1979. There had just been fiscal restraint. We were on the verge of going bankrupt. The famous New York Daily News headline of then-President Gerald Ford saying, drop dead, we're not going to bail you out. And then Ed Koch, just having been elected the brand-new mayor, inheriting a (sighs) mishigash, a mess from little Mayor A. Beam. Ed Koch could not spend a nickel, diamond penny without getting permission. There was a financial control board put into effect to prevent us from having to go Chapter 11. Governor Hugh Carey had appointed uh, 
a series of individuals. Victor Gottbaum represented the unions. Uh, Felix Roatan represented the bankers, and they pooled their resources to save New York City. We were falling into the abyss. Ed Koch would curse about the fact he couldn't spend a nickel, dime, and penny without getting permission of the financial control board. No mayor has ever had to deal with that. And he had a layoff, I remember at that time, about 9,000 civil servants. Imagine 9,000. A lot of them cops, firefighters, social workers, teachers, uh, mainstream sanitation uh, men. Uh, I mean, the city was uh, just a hot mess back then. And I say to myself, knowing all of that, knowing he was my nemesis, he was my enemy, Ed Koch. But I understood what he was facing in the late 70s when he was elected to save this city. He, he had to, because if not, the city would have been in receivership. Never mind Rikers Island. The city would have been in receivership. And to see of late what has happened to his image and to see some of those who were his allies politically who have turned on him, they are traditors of the worst type. They have done an a march, an march on Ed Koch. They are sticking the long knives into him. And I'm saying to myself, these were his friends. These were his allies. Like Carolyn Maloney, who is the uh, Upper East Side Congresswoman. She's been there in perpetuity. She was a city councilwoman when Ed Koch was mayor. She was the one who proposed naming the 59th Street Bridge, the Queensboro Bridge, the Ed Koch Bridge in 2011. Naming it. In fact, she went so far as to say that the 77th Street Lexington Avenue stop on the 6th train should be named in honor of Ed Koch, except the MTA said we don't name stations after individuals. She wanted to do that. And now all of a sudden she has turned on him because one gay Democratic club, the Jim Owls Club, has said, if you want our endorsement, you turn on Ed Koch because he wasn't gay enough. Again, imagine it. He wasn't freaking gay enough. And we're going to go into this at length. Because remember, number one enemy of Ed Koch in all those years. I got locked up over 70 times because of Ed Koch and the pressures of the city to put the Guardian Angels out of business and to take out Curtis Sliwa. And we eventually made amends. That is Carolyn Maloney. What a disgraziata. I remember... She was having a tough primary to uh, get reelected congresswoman who endorsed her at Koch. What a fair weathered friend. And then, oh, yeah, the guy who maybe one day got forbid over my dead body. Hakeem Jeffries, congressman who represents my old district in Canarsie, Brownsville, East New York. Got the endorsement of Ed Koch, who actually did a radio ad for him. I remember listening to the radio ad when he was running in a very, a very difficult Democratic primary to become the congressman. Hakeem Jeffries, who people don't know, was the nephew of one of the worst anti-Semites ever to exist in New York City, Dr. Leonard Jeffries of the City University of New York, who coined the expression, ice people, white people. And sun people, black people, and hated Jews with a passion. Now, A. Koch could have easily said, hey, you might be the evil seed of Leonard Jeffries. But you know what? He endorsed Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries just stuck the long knife into him. 
So that's right. Take the name off of that bridge. He wasn't gay enough. And then Grace Meng, right, a congresswoman who's lucky to be congresswoman there. All of a sudden, she took out her long knife, and even though Ed Koch endorsed her, she said, oh, no, he wasn't gay enough. Wasn't gay enough, ladies and gentlemen. And I say to myself, you would have thought Curtis Sleewell would have been the first person. Oh, yeah, man, he had me locked up. I got wooden shampoos, concrete facials. They lost my paperwork. I ended up in Rikers Island, Brooklyn House of Detention, Bronx House of Detention, Queens House of Detention, Tombs downtown. I had the number one reason to hate Ed Koch. And to be honest with you, for a long, long time, I did. And then let me tell you the epiphany I had, just like... And Koch had a few epiphanies in his lifetime until the day he died. So as you all know, June 19th in 1992, I got shot five times with hollow point bullets by a guy named Michael Leonardi on loan from the Gambino crime family of the Carrazos in Canarsie that I grew up with. And they pleasantly took uh, the contract from John Gotti Sr. and John Gotti Jr. because they hated me. And they did it with pleasure. When I recovered in ICU, and it was touch and go for a few days there at Bellevue. And, you know, I woke, woke up. It's an icebox when you're in the ICU. They always have a nurse there because at any moment you could kick the bucket, especially because of all the toxins circulating in your body. I had tubes in every orifice of my body. I remember waking up. I was in a, a daze from all the painkillers, I looked to my left, and there was Ed Koch, my nemesis. I thought he had died and, go- died and gone straight to hell without an asbestos suit. And there he was smiling. So welcome back. Like, I was welcome back, Carter. Welcome back, Curtis. And then to the side, there was Cardinal O'Connor. He had the extra unction vest, the death right vest, just in case I didn't uh, survive that uh, taking a licking. Uh, he would have administered last rites there in Bellevue Hospital. And years later, I met Ed Koch on a number of occasions when he was hired at WABC. He was no longer mayor. He hosted the program from 11 in the morning to 11.45, only 45 minutes. He'd do a rip and read, the issues of the day, his commentary, and then it was 15 minutes of Paul Harvey. It was the highest rated hour at WABC, at the time, we had the King of Talk Radio, Bob Graham, from 3 to 7 in the afternoon, preceded by Rush Limbaugh from 12 to 3. Highest rated hour. Let me give you a little sample, please, uh, of Ed Koch here, uh, Matt. Just a little sample of what he sounded like when he was here at WABC. Ed Koch! This is Ed Koch on WABC, and we're going to hear from Herb, who lives in Queens. Okay, Herb. Good morning, Mayor. Yeah. Uh, first, I want to welcome you. We finally have someone who's truly qualified to talk about our problems in the city and country. And uh, Thank you. I missed you. You were you were a straight talker, and Thank sometimes you. people can't stand to hear the truth. Oh, and he was. Remember the liberal with sanity. And when he was elected, how am I doing? How am I doing? As he uh, paraded himself around the city, he rode the subways, he walked the streets, and when the uh, TWU workers called a strike and just stopped the train and bus service like they had done with John Lindsay. Lindsay folded, Ed Koch didn't. He greeted the commuters, he pumped up their spirits, and he broke the strike. And that was one of many incredible things that he did as mayor. And remember, I didn't like this guy. 
But you give credit where credit is due. Eventually, we became friends. And Ed Koch often, when asked about, well, you know, you call the guardian angels vigilantes, the hell's angels. You said they were like a gang. He goes, hey, you know, everybody can be wrong in life. I was wrong. The guardian angels are like chicken soup. You know, it's like liquid penicillin. You take it when you have a cold. It can only help. It can't hurt. I'll never forget that till the day I die. But these two traditors. These skifosa, these fachims who are emerging, the so-called fair-weather friends of Ed Koch, Carolyn Maloney, Hakeem Jeffries, Grace Meng. They now want his name removed from the edifice, the Ed Koch Bridge, because they claim he wasn't gay enough and that he was a homophobe. Now... This woke culture is so crazy. And let me go through the timeline. What none of these folks involved with themselves. First of all, Ed Koch was uh, born up in the Bronx, right by Cretona Park. And guess what? They didn't stay in the Bronx. They went to Newark, New Jersey, Southside. He went to Southside High School. You know who else grew up in Newark at that time? At that time, the number one box office uh, actor and comedian, Jerry Lewis, and Ed Koch's very dear friend, Alphonse Alleyboy D'Amato. Yep, yep, they were all Newark boys. And then eventually he came back and went to City University, NYU, became a lawyer. And he went, drafted, into the Army World War II. And he wasn't just uh, pushing paper. This guy won a whole series of medals. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. And then at the end of the war, having survived where some of his colleagues in the military had died, Ed Koch was sent into Germany because he spoke fluent German. And he had the job of cycling out the Nazis in government and replacing them with non-Nazis. You know, that was not an easy task. Because those Nazis hated, despised, loathed Jews. So he comes back to New York City. And he makes his bones politically. And he does so in a way that most, uh, most politicians were fearful of. He became a reformer and he took out Carmine DiSapio, who was the last head of the Tammany Hall machine in all of New York City, with ties to Frank Costello, who had been the head of organized crime. You know who took him out? Ed Koch, 1962. Just to give you an idea of what Carmine DiSapio was like, he always wore dark glasses, just like Paulie Castellano, acted like a mobster. It was like the sixth crime family of organized crime. You had the Lucchese's, the Bananos, you had the Columbo's, the Genovese, the Gambinos, and you had Tammany Hall. And he defeated DiSapio and became the Democratic Party leader of Manhattan. It was unheard of. That was a catch. And then he... He won a city council seat. And then in 1973, he was going to run for mayor, and he opted out. And you know why he opted out? A lot of people don't realize that. The Carolyn Maloney's, the Hakeem Jeffries, the Grace Mengs of the world, all those who were declaring that he wasn't gay enough, that, in fact, he was a homophobe. In 1973... In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association considered homosexuality, homosexuality to be a mental disorder. 1973. And it took uh, a guy 
who was identified as Dr. Henry Nobody. He, he wanted to remain anonymous. He wore an oversized tuxedo, a rubber mask, a Nixon mask. He had a wig, an altered voice. He was a psychiatrist. And he gave a 10-minute speech before the American Psychiatric Association meeting in Dallas, in which he announced, I am a homosexual, I am a psychiatrist, I do not have a mental disorder. Now, can you have imagined what it was like in that gathering that for a 100 years believed that if you were a homosexual or a lesbian, you were mentally ill? They would put you away in a psychiatric facility, an asylum, 1972-73. And they're saying that Ed Koch should have come out of the closet. The guy's ready to run for mayor. That would have been it. Death on arrival, D-O-A. Because they're applying today's standards in 2022 to 1972. Imagine that. Imagine if Ed Koch would have announced that he was openly gay. People would have said, you have a mental disorder. But then again, nowadays you can say that because you're not a student of history. And again, I'm a student of history. And I recognize the tortured life that he had to have lived, knowing he was born a homosexual. And he couldn't go out. He couldn't go to gay bars. Why? Because the Genovese crime family controlled all the gay bars. And they knew exactly who was gay and who was lesbian. And they would use it against you. They would blackmail you. That's why the Stonewall riots came about. So he had to avoid that. He had to avoid socializing. He couldn't go all of a sudden to Fire Island and be seen with other gays. Because somebody would have dropped dime on him. And that's it. It would have been over. He had to lead a secret life. Can you imagine the pressures on this guy in the early 1970s? Being gay or lesbian, you were considered demonic, satanic by some. Would have destroyed your political career. And these Carolyn Maloney's now and Hakeem Jeffries and Grace Meng taking advantage of the new mores of our society are saying he wasn't gay enough and he was homophobic because he wasn't there for those that were suffering from AIDS. Let me open up our phone lines. Can you imagine I, I'm the one defending Ed Koch? Hey, where, where are you, Democrats? Where are you, all of you woke Democrats, accusing Ed Koch of not being gay enough or being homophobic? Cowards. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. So he decided not to run for mayor in 1973. Too hot to handle. There were too many whispers. The innuendos. He's gay. He's gay. We're going to get him. He announces he's going to run for mayor. We're going to smash him before he even gets to shake his first hand and kiss his first baby. But he regroups. And in 1977, Ed Koch, who was then congressman, decides he's running for mayor against the sitting mayor, Abe Beam, who was a nebbishy, schlubby person of no consequence, who was mayor in the middle of the blackout, uh, the the lack of law, the lack of disorder, and the chaos and anarchy that gripped this city in 1977. Believe it or not, Ed Koch became the law and order candidate. The law and order candidate. This guy was a liberal. 
But he looked around amongst the many Democrats who were running for the mayoralty, including Mario Cuomo. I'm against the death penalty. I'm against the death penalty. And his campaign managers, David Garth, said, well, you've got to be pro-death penalty. I know, Ed Koch, you're anti-death penalty. And he said to David Garth, but the mayor has nothing to do with the death penalty. He said, trust me on this. You're going to have to trust me implicitly because they have this rumor out there that you're gay. Or what they said at the time, this is a term they used, a fag. And it wasn't a cigarette over in England. And Ed Koch looked into David Garth's eyes and said, David, I am a heterosexual. And he knew he was lying because it was instant political death. So he became the law and order candidate. And in the primary, he beat the sitting mayor, Abe Beam, and he beat the challenger, Mario Cuomo. He got 20% of the vote. Cuomo got 19%. Beam got 18%. So that precipitated a runoff. And all of a sudden, they started doing pollings. And the polls indicated that Ed Koch, the law and order candidate, the pro-death penalty candidate, was going to win the runoff. And so there was a meeting on Austin Street, hosted by the crooked Queens County Democratic chairman, Matty Troy. In attendance, mayoral candidate Mario Facha Bruta Cuomo and his son, Andrew Evilize Cuomo, who at 23 was Mario's campaign manager. And I say Mario because Andrew has never called him father, dad, pops. He's always called him Mario. And Andrew says to Mario, Dad, we're going to lose this race. You got one choice, one choice only. The signs are already made up in a warehouse in Long Island City. We just need your okay to distribute them in all five boroughs. Vote for Cuomo, not the homo. Vote for Cuomo, not the homo. And Mario, you know, as he typically did, uh, the Hamlet of the Hudson, he hemmed, he hawed, I don't know, maybe, possibly, could be. Go for it. Do it. Seize it. Thumbs up. And I walk out of my apartment one day, and I'm, I'm going up and down the block. I'm like, holy. I couldn't believe it. They even had it chalked into the cement and the asphalt. Vote for Cuomo, not the homo. You can imagine. Those polls plummeted. Ed Koch was going to suffer a devastating loss. Mario Cuomo was going to be the mayor. And then David Garth inserted himself and saved Ed Koch. Oh, you don't want to go anywhere. You turn the dial on this one, you don't have a soul. You must be vapid. As we continue on here to the 12 o'clock hour, when I pass over the microphone to a very good friend of Ed Koch in his final years. That's right, our own Dominic Carter. W-A-B-C. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New York's talk station with the king of New York. Curtis Lewa, 77 WABC. You're my 
1977. And Dave Garth is sitting with Ed Koch. While Ed Koch is saying, it's over, it's over. David Garth goes, hold on. Let me call Queen Esther. Who's Queen Esther? I remember. In the... uh, In the... uh, the study of uh, Jewish history, the Old Testament, Queen Esther was the Jewish wife of the Persian king Xerxes, very, very popular figure. And the modern-day version of Queen Esther had been the first Jewish-American woman to win the Miss America contest, Bess Meyerson, in Atlantic City. Every booby, every Zeta out there, every Jewish mother, every Jewish grandmother hoped that their son or their grandson would meet Bess Meyerson and would marry Bess Meyerson. I mean, she was the epitome. Beautiful, gorgeous, intelligent. And so David Garth calls up Bess Meyerson, Queen Esther, and says, I need a favor from you. From now to the end of the campaign, I need you to be like Velcro on Ed Koch. Wherever Ed goes, you go. You hold hands. You whisper sweet things in each other's ears. You kiss from time to time, and you promise that if Ed Koch is elected the next mayor of the city of New York replacing A.B., that come a certain point in his mayoralty, there will be a wedding at Gracie Mansion involving America's sweetheart, Bess Meyerson, and Ed Koch. Oh, man. Ed goes, Dave, you think it'll work? He said, let's take it out to Coney Island, Brighton Beach. Now, how do I know this, ladies and gentlemen? Because I was there on the boardwalk. I remember I had the dirty water hot dog from Nathan's Famous in my hand. I had a bunch of guys out there ready to play handball in the handball court, Brighton Beach. And I see Ed Koch and Bess Meyerson walking along with their entourage. And they're holding hands and they're kissing each other on the cheek. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my God. And they walked over to the Brighton Beach Bath and Racquet Club. You got to understand, this was the Subway Riviera on Coney Island Avenue. Uh, the D train would bring all the altacockers there. Yeah, I think it cost you like $200 for like a 10-month season. Every Jew who hadn't fled to Miami Beach was a, was a member of the Brighton Beach Bath and Racquet Club. I mean, you saw the women there. They were playing Mahjong. They were playing Canasta. Uh, oh, man, every game. Penny Annie, Rummy. Then they had pools there. They had tennis courts. They had live music, dancing. They had comedians like Pat Cooper, Myron Cohen, Red Buttons, Henny Youngman. You name it, they had it. Even a miniature golf course. The place was packed. And they walked in there, and it was like the Red Sea parted from Moses. And I knew at that moment, this guy's going to win. And they were like lovey-dovey. They got every Jewish vote. It was like, what, 20,000 at the Brighton Beach Bath and Racquet Club. The Yentas started talking about this. Oh, a future wedding at Gracie Mansion. Bess Meyerson and Ed Koch. And the Cuomos were crushed. And rightfully so, those liberal, progressive homophobes. Because it was all about winning. It had nothing to do with what was right or wrong. And then years later, the flip. What was it? Uh, it was about 82 or so. 
All of a sudden, uh, you Kerry stepped down as governor. Lieutenant Governor Cuomo, he wants to run for governor. Koch announces he wants to run. Rupert Murdoch, the New York Post, they embrace Koch. Koch is going to win the primary. It's like, forget it, Cuomo, you're going to lose again. And then, unexplainedly, Koch does an interview for Playboy magazine in which he says the lifestyle outside of New York City through the rest of the state is sterile. Small towns, ugh, Albany, I'd hate to be in Albany. And he self-destructed. Cuomo eked out a victory in the Democratic primary and then went on to beat Louis Lehrman uh, with the red suspenders, a Republican, in a very, very close race. And so all of these detractors, fair-weather friends of Ed Koch, who needed him when they were running for election, Carolyn Maloney, Utreditor, Hakeem Jeffries, Utreditor, Grace Meng, Utreditor, have now signed on to say that if necessary, they'll get on the scaffold and they will personally remove the name Ed Koch from all the signage. I mean, who calls it the 59th Street Bridge anymore? You know, Julio and what's his name uh, in the schoolyard? Nope. Queensboro Bridge. Nobody calls it the Queensboro Bridge. It's the only bridge that people know the name of because obviously the population wants to get rid of the Mario Cuomo Bridge and turn it back to what it used to be. The Tappan Sea Bridge. So now you know the rest of the story. And in reading this front page story, it talks about Ed Koch's personal life. I say, you couldn't let this guy rest in peace. He didn't want to acknowledge being gay. He came out of a time when to do so was like a death warrant. Leave him be. Don't dance on his bones. Don't try to buff up your resume by claiming, yeah, we attacked Ed Koch because he wasn't gay enough. And most importantly, because he was a self-hating gay man. Oofa, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Gary in Long Island. Your turn to be heard here on W. Hey, good evening, Curtis. Uh my name is Gary. I live in Long Island. Originally uh, born and raised in Queens, New York, and uh, was a um, retired city worker. I got hired under Red Koch, uh, 1984. And I just want to thank you tonight for such a great uh, show. I remember the, you know these old days you're talking about, and like you're the best guy. I really can't say enough about you. Thank you. No, it's so important. We remember the past. We remember history because when all of a sudden we get critical about people in history, we forget. What was the time like? What were the attitudes like? Imagine you're going to run for mayor in 1973 and the American Psychiatric Association has labeled homosexuality a mental disorder. A mental disorder back in 1972, 73. It's unbelievable. And yet today, today you have young gays and lesbians and transgenders and they have 72 different terms you have to apply to people. You identify them as they wish to be identified. 72 different terms. I'm pansexual. I'm this. I'm that. Do they have any idea what it was like in the early 70s? And do you know that all these liberals and progressives were against gay marriage? They hid behind the defense of the Marriage Act, the Clintons. Schumer, all of them who say they were so pro-gay, so pro-lesbian. Well, let me tell you something. 
I did the first gay marriage in New York State, 1976, in the projects, the Soundview projects for my closer at uh, McDonald's at the time, Ralphie. It was written up in the Huffington Post by a guy who was one of my closers who turned out to be uh, gay and one of the cast characters on The Sopranos. I had no idea he was writing about that. 76. And that's when even gays would say, oh, we can't. We can't talk about getting married to one another. They'll burn us at the stake. We'll be lucky if they give us domestic partnership. These fake, phony, fraudulent fagazies. But you remember, Gary. You remember what it was like. I remember those days. I remember everything you went through and, you know, patrolling those subways and all the, you know, the slack with the transit police and all that stuff. And I've uh, seen it all. Like I say, bring it back. The memories, and what a, what a great show tonight, and always a great show. And in memory of my mother friend, Cheska, she sat at the kitchen table in Canarsie. This was the day when there were no cell phones. People were calling up the house in Canarsie to get comments from this vigilante, this gang member, this domestic terrorist, Curtis Lee, a leader of the Hells Angels, not the Guardian Angels. And she became Fran White. Her maiden name was Bianco, shortened from Bianchino. So she said, I'll handle the PR. I'll know how to soften up everybody who's out to destroy you, son. Because you can't do it. You're just too hot-headed. You're too volatile. You're like ammonia and bleach. So Ed Koch had the best PR people. He had George Arts, who just appeared with the Cats Roundtable a few days uh, ago in defense of the Ed Koch Bridge and against all of his newfound enemies. It was Morty Matz, who was the number one PR guy. He represented the transit police. My mother would be getting calls morning, noon, and night. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Fran White, are you aware 13 guardian angels were just arrested for vandalizing the D train at Stillwell Avenue on Coney Island? She would say, sir, I'll get all the facts. Just calm down. I wouldn't run with that story because, let's face it, You really have to hear from Curtis Lee. That's my mother. Nobody knew it was my mother. Years later, Koch, George Arts, Morty Matz, all the top PR people, Rubenstein, they all said, that was your mother? We would have hired her. She was incredible. She, She fought off the horde of all those journalists, all those elected officials that wanted to destroy you and turn you into a speed bump. That's right. My mother, Francesca, did this because you knew that I had anger management issues. She said, let me handle this, Curtis. Fran White, at your service, having no idea that it was Francis Francesca Bianchino, her maiden name, truncated to Bianco. Obviously, nobody who could uh, pronounce Sliwa at the time. They said Saluva, Saliva, Silva. And, boy, she saved my bacon, I can't tell you how many times. Because she was able to remain cool, calm, and collected and get the facts to the people. Anyway, let's go to Keith in Matza Pizza, Long Island, better known as Massapequa. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Keith. Hey, Curtis, how you doing, my friend? Now, uh, we got to straighten them out. You know, I know there are other talk show hosts and hostesses here, a panoply of them, and they welcome people calling them. In fact, at times, it's like uh, the Mojave Desert. Please call me. Say anything you want. 
How you doing? Oh, how you doing? How's the wife and kids? Well, you know, no, no, no. We cut right to the chase. There's the Robert Rules of Orders of Conduct and Calling In. And I want as many people as possible to call in because that's what this is. Talk radio, a stream of consciousness, theater of the mind. But don't ask me how I'm doing because I'm going to tell you I've had better days. Kavish? Kavish, Keith? Kavish? Yes, yes, sir. The reason I called was, Curtis, the reason I called was is that... um, my dad had a gas station in Woodhaven when I was a kid. I remember going with him in the 70s, and that race for uh, for um, mayor in New York City, there was like 10 candidates. Fella um, Abzog, Barry Farber uh, was in that race, I remember. I don't, I'm not sure if A.B. was there. I think he lost. He might have been in there, too. There was like 10 candidates, and there are posters and billboards everywhere on telephone poles in the city in those days. And, of course, like you said, uh, Koch ended up winning it. But it was a free-for-all in the Democratic Party in those days. And believe it or not, Keith, out of all those candidates you mentioned, Bella Abzug, Abe Beam, Mario Cuomo, Percy Sutton, um, he was, Ed Koch was the law and order candidate. He was the liberal with sanity. 1972, uh, when Koch went to Congress, I had a congressman where I lived in Massapequa, and his name was Angelo Roncalo. And they both sat on one of the committees as junior Congress people, and Bella Abzug was one of the senior people on the committee. And Koch turned over to Angelo Roncalo, and he said, you know why Abzug never stands up when she wants to talk on the podium? And Roncalo said, why? And, and Koch said to him, because if she stands up, my testicles will stick out. <laughs> oh, and let me kid kid you not. Bella Abzug was rough and tough. She grew up in the Bronx. In fact, her father uh, had chickens. That's when they would have uh, chickens and you would go and get the fresh chicken. And she would be in the back room and she'd take two chickens and snap their heads simultaneously. And I remember being in the green room with Bella Abzug one time. She was on the house phone because there were only house phones back then. Every second word was the F-bomb. I said, oh, my God, I never heard. My father was a merchant seaman. He didn't curse. Bella Abzug, the F-bomb, rough and tough. Get out of my way, kid. Well, who the hell do you think you are? F you. I was like, oh, my God. I could use her in the Guardian Angel. She'd intimidate the hell out of all the thugs and thugettes. And yet, Ed Koch was able to supersede all of these iconic figures. I mean, these were really iconic figures running to be mayor of the city of New York. Percy Sutton, who owned Inner City Broadcasting, WBLS. It's the station that African-Americans listened to. Then you had Herman Badillo, right? He was on his way to becoming mayor, first Hispanic mayor. He had the Hispanic vote. You had A. Bean, Nebuchadnezzar Schlubby A. Bean, the accountant, who was living in the Ponset and the Rockaways at that time, who was the product of the Steingut Bloom crooked Democratic machine in Brooklyn, whose answer to the recession was, do what I do. I brown bag my lunch to Gracie, Gracie Mansion and to, uh, to City Hall. I eat Velveeta cheese sandwiches. That was his answer. Can you imagine him now to inflation? Just eat Velveeta cheese sandwiches. I wouldn't doubt that Joe Biden will probably say that at some point. Although, have you seen the price of Velveeta cheese? That's going up, too. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Maxine in Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Maxine. Curtis, I had to mention, 
as you were talking about uh, Ed Koch, I immediately thought of Beth Meyerson. And I have to say that she went through a difficult period after this kind of so-called scandal. And there was a rabbi in Manhattan. He's since passed. His name was Shlomo Karlbach, Upper West Side Synagogue. And I, I remember going there, and I remember seeing her there. And he, you could see she was really down with what had happened taking place. And the rabbi, Shlomo Karlbach, really was bringing comfort to her. He was like one of the only people around who was kind to her. It was a difficult time, so I wanted to just share that. Oh, yeah, and, but now, now uh, Maxine, I, I actually knew that Rabbi Shlomo. Uh, he yeah, was a fixture yeah. on the Upper West Side. But let me tell you about Bess Meinsen. So Bess Meinsen, right, every booby, every Zeta, every Jewish grandmother, every mother would want their son or their, their, their grandson, you know, to possibly marry Bess Meinsen, right? You would go right past Hashem, right into heaven, and yet she found all of a sudden, she's dating Andy Capasso, who's like a sewer contractor from Howard Beach who's using Mantan. You know, Mantan, he's like, he glows in the dark. He's a little short, short guy, and I'm looking at the both of them and saying, what the hell happened? Best Meyerson, this guy? Oh, my God. Wow. And then Hortense Gable, her... Uh, her daughter was interrogated by my Kumbada Cheech, Rudy Giuliani. Not his finest hour, I might add. Almost cost him becoming mayor of the city of New York. Oh, wow. The memories are flowing. See? Because of Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Let's go to John calling all the way from Reno, Nevada. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, John. I remember during the primary campaign of Koch against Cuomo, I remember Cuomo supporters carrying signs that said, vote for Cuomo, not the homo. That's right. Um, do you remember that? I not only remember it, I remember walking out of my apartment and seeing them up and down the street on trees because you weren't supposed to put them into a tree. You know, there's only one tree that grew in Brooklyn. That was considered arborside. They had it chalked in the asphalt on the streets. They had it everywhere. Yeah. You know, and the funny thing is, is uh, Cuomo's daughter, uh, granddaughter's now gay, and Giuliani's daughter is gay. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how times change. Well, not only that, but it's indicative of, and again, this is a guy that had me locked up so many times at Koch, of the suffering that he had to go through. He was born gay. But because he was on his own personal mission, and he did a lot of good, but he couldn't be gay. You didn't survive as a politician at that point, you know, saying, oh, you know, come out of the closet. You go to announce you are gay or a lesbian. No, back then you were dead on arrival. In fact, let's see the cognoscenti out there. They can earn a Curtis Lee Booby Prize. There was a woman running for attorney general of the state of New York. She was well ahead in the polls. And this wasn't in the 70s. This was much later. Guy Molinari said publicly, the Republican uh, borough president uh, of Staten Island, she's gay. 
As a result of that, she lost becoming the state attorney general. To who? And how quickly she lost a 10-point lead because of that. And that wasn't in the 70s. And that just goes to show you how difficult it was to be a gay or a lesbian. You had to hide it from the public. You couldn't acknowledge it. You couldn't blow uh, the doors uh, off uh, of your closet and come out of the closet. Because if you if you chose to do that, you couldn't function in politics. In fact, you might have lost your government job. You might have lost your private sector job. You were on the outside looking in. And look at all these folks. Look, I'm reading it right now. Carolyn Maloney, you're double disgraziata. You are the one who lobbied to have... The 59th Street Bridge in 2011 named the Ed Koch Bridge. You wanted, you wanted the 77th and Lexington Avenue subway station of the 6th train renamed the Ed Koch station after his death. And they told you in the MTA, we don't name, you know, subway stations after people. And what a fair weather friend you turned out to be. Now all of a sudden, one gay Democratic group says... Carolyn, you got to turn on Ed Koch because he wasn't gay enough. In fact, he was a self-hating gay. I I agree. Oh, anything. I'll say anything to be elected congressman. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, let me go out there and paint it in front of Trump Tower. You fugazi. Hakeem Jeffries already believes that one day... When Pelosi is gone and the Democrats are back into the majority of the House, because you know that eventually happens, the figure eight, he will be the speaker. The nephew of the worst anti-Semite in the history of New York City, Dr. Leonard Jeffries of the City University of New York, who was preaching, there are sun people and there are ice people. And you whites, you're the ice people. And Jews... You are despicable. Now, Ed Koch knew this. And he didn't say, well, you know, you're the nephew of Leonard Jeffries, Hakeem. I got to, you know, come on. He endorsed Hakeem Jeffries. He did a radio advertisement for him. I remember hearing it. And who stabbed him in the back with a long knife like it was the Ides of March? Hakeem Jeffries. And Grace Meng. You were a politician of no consequence. I remember you, Grace. I remember I saw you in Forest Hills. And you tripped up in a number of synagogues because you didn't know anything about the Middle East. You didn't know anything going on between Israel and its many enemies. And who came to your rescue and said, oh, no, 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 I bless her. It's like Hashem blessing her. She'll be good for the Jews, Grace May. That was a conch. Well, you would have lost that primary. And now all of a sudden you turn on Ed Koch and say, I'll be the first to go up there and scrub his name off the bridge. Please, please don't turn on me. I want to be in Congress. I have no values. I have no morals. I have no soul. You're all despicable. Hey, you try to take that name off the bridge, you're going to have to go through Curtis Lewa. And I was his number one enemy for years. Go ahead. Over my dead body. Maloney. Hakeem Jeffries. Grace Man. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. 
the theme song of the Honeymooners. Number one TV show in America for so many years. Jackie Gleason, Art Carney. Very simple apartment in Bensonhurst. Jackie Gleason, bus driver for a private company at that time because they had him. But now just imagine he is a driver for the MTA money-taking agency. And I don't know if any of you are aware, you go to the Port Authority on 42nd Street, right at about the entrance on 41st, there is a statue to Jackie Gleason. And so many people pass that statue each day, they have no idea who that is. And he's dressed as a bus driver. And then you go to Sunset Park in Brooklyn, and they have the huge bus depot for all the MTA money-taking agency buses. And it is called the Jackie Gleason Depot. Because he's most synonymous for driving a bus. And back then, the bus driver was the king of his castle. And I'm not talking about his house, because we knew that wasn't true of Jackie Gleason. Because every time he'd squabble with his wife, you know who won out. He was the Maytag in his house. But on a bus, and think back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 50s, the 60s, And when you got on that bus, the bus driver was the sheriff. And you better behave yourself, and you better pay your fare. And remember, the coins would be tossed around. And I remember I didn't have a nickel with my student government organization bus pass, you know, because you get a pass where you have to put a nickel in. So I'd say, I don't want to hear any drama here, kid. I don't want to hear soap opera. Get the hell off my bus. Get a nickel. Everybody pays their fare. You couldn't get on. And if you went to the back of the bus, remember, you, that's where all the troublemakers went, in the back of the bus, and they'd be loud and they'd be abrasive and sometimes they'd be messing with other passengers or if they were talking trash about the bus driver, all of a sudden the bus driver understood he was the sheriff of his bus. He had to keep law and order. And he would take this black stick. They all had this black stick behind the chair. And at that time, the MTA, very diverse. You had Hispanic bus drivers, black bus drivers, Irish, a lot of Irish bus drivers at that time, Italians, Jews. But it was mostly Irish and I would say black at that time. And they had this big stick. And they pull it out and they come walking back. And man, you'd be out that back door because they whoop you. Oh, yeah, they'd whoop you as if it was uh, Buford Pusser, a.k.a. The Rock, in Walking Tall, you know, with that two-by-four. The bus driver was in control. The fare got paid. Now, sometimes the bus driver would look at you. You were indigent. You didn't have the money. Don't worry about it. Catch me the next time. They put their hand on top of the change uh, uh, churner, you know, constantly. It would be churning up. And that's the way the system Provided security. The bus driver was the sheriff of the bus. He took responsibility. You knew you messed with that bus driver, you would be banned, excommunicated in perpetuity. You could never get on that bus. So you knew you might get over on that bus driver one time. He didn't need photo identification. He didn't need a video. He remembered you, and they didn't forget. Then let's speed up the years, and then all of a sudden... We decided to tell the bus drivers, you're impotent. 
you don't ever get involved. Because we fear a whole group of people out there who are practicing their martial art every day. Morning, noon, and night, like uh, they were doing Tai Chi in the morning. I sue, I sue, I sue, lawyers. And so bureaucrats who were growing barnacles on their tuchus were now telling bus drivers, no, don't do anything. Don't get involved. In fact, call 911. Really? You think those police officers wanted to respond to a 911 call on a bus that had to pull over because some Herkimer jerks didn't pay their fare? You effectively neutered the bus drivers and the security that was already inherent in the system because the bus driver took responsibility for what went on on that bus. So now let's speed it up. We had the lockdown and pandemic, and people decided, I'm not paying my fare. District attorneys, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, Manhattan, saying, we're not going to prosecute fare evasion. So go ahead, cops, knock yourself out. Go ahead, write up fare evaders, but we're not going to prosecute them. So naturally, cops were rendered impotent, too, and they decided, I'm not going to write you up. Well, now they realize there's a dearth of money. The stimulus is over. You know, Grandpa Biden and uh, Grandmother Harris, you know, with all their stimulus money in these, it's over. Chuck E. Cheese Schumer, it's over. They can't give you any more stimulus. So now you got to pay your own freight. And by next year, the Grim Reaper is coming because the system, the money-taking agency, will be insolvent. They can't get enough of the fair money. So if you look at the analytics, 30% of the people now who get on a bus do not pay their fare. They just basically give the bus driver the bird. The bus drivers don't even want to get into an argument because they're not going to get any backup. You think the MTA, the suits at J Street Borough Hall are going to back up a bus driver if he decides to get out of his seat and say, pay your fare like everybody else, or he's going to pull the bus over and wait for a police car to come, which will take a month of Sundays, and then everybody else on the bus will be giving that bus driver grief? These people have no freaking common sense. So these are the new rules and regulations. Get this. And if you're a bus driver, good luck, pal. From now on, you cannot open the back doors. You know how uh, the Caterpillar buses, you know how they have a middle section and a rear section that opens up so that you can actually get on the back of the bus. Nope, ain't going to happen. Everybody's got to enter on the front of the bus. So that means you think you're delayed now. You know how long you're going to be delayed now that everybody's got to get in the front of the bus. And they're going to be arguments and they're going to be battles. And you know doggone well those bus drivers are not going to confront passengers. We're still going to give them uh, the passengers going to flip the bird at the bus driver and say, I ain't paying. What are you going to do to me? Where are you going to go? Go ahead. Try to throw me off the bus. Go ahead. Call the cops. See if they come. Now, they make up these rules and regulations at J Street Borough Hall because they never take a bus. If they actually took a bus and they understood the problems that bus drivers have, that passengers spit in their face, assault them, kick them, slam them, and then they're told, don't respond. It's the New Testament. Turn your cheek and say, hit me on this cheek. But it's not Old Testament like it used to be. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know Curtis Lewa. I believe in the Old Testament. Let a bus driver be a bus driver. Whether a man or a woman, 
they have to take control of the bus. So what have they done? The money-taking agency headed by Governor Holcomb. Holcomb, uh, that's her name because she's full of nonsense. When the hell did she ever take a bus, right? Not even a crosstown bus. Uh, Governor Holcomb has said, yes, we got to put together a blue ribbon panel to figure out how to curb fare evasion. Save yourself the expense. I'll sit down with you and tell you how to do it. Very simply, with bus drivers. <sighs> Common sense does not prevail. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Joseph calling from Brighton Beach. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Joey. Come on, Curtis. Good evening, whatever it is. We have a few things, so hang on, okay? You, you remember a bus driver in the, in the neighborhood, Arnie. He had a beautiful daughter working in Donatown over there. Ooh. The, how did you know that I, that I, well, how did you know, Giuseppe, that I knew her at Donatown, huh? Donatown? Oh, I don't know. That's a, I'm the magical mystery call as well. Wait a second. How do you know so much about me, Giuseppe? Boy, you knew a lot about me. I was trying to snack not on the donuts. I was trying to snack on on the waitress. Joseph is stymied there. Joseph, you think you're like CIA, criminals in action? You get to know all about me and I don't know anything about you? Donut town. Donut world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were good donuts. No, they weren't. They were lousy donuts. I was there for the waitress. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Tony, who's calling from Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Tony. Hey, man. So I'm a lifelong born-bred New Yorker. I never imagined myself living anywhere else in the world other than New York. But not too long ago, I moved to New Jersey. And I got a message for you, not not so much for you because I know there's no hope, but maybe for your listeners, the, there's a big world out there. And let me tell you something: New Jersey is amazing. It's like it's like what New York is supposed to be. I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about quality of life. New York is five minutes away from becoming bankrupt. It's gonna be the next Detroit. It's there's no hope. It's beyond repair. Now, Tony, um, I am uh, a cognoscente of all things the Garden State, uh, Jersey. I've traveled from Camden in the south along the Delaware River opposite Ben Franklin Bridge to Philadelphia and up to the most corrupt county in America, Hudson County, Jersey City, Bayonne, Hoboken. Uh, But you can't say that about all of Jersey, Tony. Well, where I am, I'm right outside of Princeton. Oh. And let me tell you something. Oh, oh excuse get... me. Now, hold on a second, Tony. Uh, that, that's, that is top shelf five star, what you're talking about. I'm talking about Patterson, up the hill, down the hill, first ward, fourth ward. I'm talking about South Orange Avenue. I'm talking about Newark. I'm talking about Central that's, Avenue. Let me tell you something. That's the buffer. That's the buffer that we have to filter out the New Yorkers that want to come to Jersey. They got to go through all that, all that wasteland. It'll pick up a couple of particles, but the good people make it out to the central. Tony, Tony, Tony you tax too much. You got a governor 
right, who called you all knuckleheads, and you reelected him against Cinarelli. There's no hope. There's no hope for anybody politically. But let me tell you something. At least over there, we have space. A man, a man, can have his. Uh... He'll be in North Carolina by the end of the month. You see, you see the taxes they pay down in Princeton Township. What the hell is he talking about? He'll be in North Carolina. Yeah, that's the number two go-to state. First is Florida. But you know something? You can't even get a house in Florida anymore. There's no more supply. You can't even get a rental. I mean, it's maxed out to Santa's land, freedom land. The next stop, North Carolina, then South Carolina, then Georgia, then Virginia, then Texas, then Tennessee, then parts unknown. Yeah, Tony will be leaving for North Carolina, I predict, in a month. Well, maybe, just maybe, he works for the knucklehead. The real knucklehead that you all reelected there as your governor, half in the bag, Murphy. Who does not believe in drinking water. If you've ever been at a podium with Governor Murphy, remove that glass that's always there, and you notice how droplets are on it. That's not water. Man, that's vodka. Straight. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Juan in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Juan. Hey, Crudis. How are you doing? I'm not asking because you've had better days, but uh, here's the story. What, you know, you were talking last week about the union. Why don't the bus drivers unionize and screw their the system up as well? I mean, everybody's doing the union thing. So why don't they do the union and say, either you t- let us, you know, take control of our bus and you know, send people off that don't pay the fear, or we're just going to stop driving. One, brilliant. They already have a very powerful union, the TWU, Local 100, and they have another uh, affiliated union. Why isn't it working? Well, why isn't that union working? Because just like the UFT, which is responsible for the teachers, they don't care about the safety of the teachers in the classroom. Absolutely. And quite frankly, no matter what the TWU says about safety, not only for bus drivers, but for conductors, motormen, uh, maintenance people, track workers, uh, they themselves, you're absolutely right. They can call a work stoppage, not over pay or benefits, but over safety. That they're, they're not going to drive those buses any longer if they're going to continue to be under attack. That's a brilliant suggestion, one. Yeah, and, I, you know, I don't see them getting attacked so much as, you know, people don't pay the fear. If I was a driver, I'd say, screw you. I'm not even asking people to pay. If people pay, they pay. If they don't, you know what, I, I'm, I don't have the authority to throw them off the bus. So I'm just going to let them move on, and I think a lot of drivers are doing that, and that's the smart way to do it. And, by the way, a lot of people, what they do is they don't go on from the front. You know, they go at uh, 8 to 10 in the morning. They they wait at the stop, and the bus is jam-packed, and the back door opens up, and, you know, people come out, and, and then the other people, a lot of most people going from the back and That's not right. from the front. They don't have to pay at all. And you're an observer. You're the, this, you, this is simple. If you just stood at a bus stop and watched this, but you think the overpaid, high-priced, white-collar executives at J Street Borough Hall even bother to see what you see and any average person can see by standing at a bus stop? Uh, I'm sure they don't see it unless, you know, there'll be accident and end up on a bus, which would mean that they got drunk the night before. But uh, I'll tell you what, you know, 
Uh, the driver shouldn't care that much, I'll tell you. Well, no, no, you know, no, no, no. Hold on. Could I have the honeymoon of steam again here, Matt? I realize you are uh, handicapped to a degree because you're the board operator for Frank Morano. Let's think, as you go to pick up your bus at the Jackie Gleason Depot, largest in the system in Sunset Park, well, you have any walking into the Port Authority on 8th Avenue to catch the Port Authority bus and all the buses to the sixth borough of the city of New York, the Catskills, the Red Bus. It takes two hours to get there and back because it's a better quality of life. What? Ask yourself the question. What would Jackie Gleason have done? I guarantee you, you weren't going to be able to get on that bus without paying your fare. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Charles in Queens. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. Um, this is what I got to hand it to you. You talk about 70 hours a week on the radio, and you always have something interesting to say. Pretty amazing. Okay, I also saw you several days ago by um, Flowers Hills. You were speaking uh, about the guy that was killed at, um, at Jewel Avenue and Queens Boulevard. Yeah, by the way, by the way, Charles, to show you what a crime dilemma we're in, uh, Chinese Asian delivery guy, age 45, really been a part of that community for years, gets shot and killed because he didn't give enough duck sauce, and they still haven't caught the assassin, the executioner yet. Everybody knows who the assassin, the executioner is. But the cops haven't made an arrest yet, Charles, which means that entire community of Forest Hills, they never really had crime problems before. They're like living in Fear City now. Yeah, a lot of loonies going around. Uh, the, the new um, no-cash no bail is just insane. Just just insane. Well, we're, 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 we're patrolling. The Guardian Angels are patrolling uh, Forest Hills. Hopefully we'll help catch the guy with the police and then restore calmness. But you had a story about a bus. Uh, what was that? Right, Charles? right, right. This guy gets a. I haven't thought of that this joke in who knows how many decades. This guy gets on a bus uh, with a suitcase and he puts in a nickel. The bus driver says, "Hey, hey, hey, man! It's a ten cents now." He says, "Ah, screw you! A nickel is more than enough. What do you do?" And he goes and he sits down with the suitcase in the back of the bus. The bus driver keeps on saying, "Give me the damn nickel! I, I'm gonna I, get." And he refuses. So. He, the bus driver stops in the middle of the bridge with the water, you know, on both sides. And he says to the guy, goes over to the guy, stops the bus, and says, give me that nickel. No? Okay. So he takes the suitcase, opens the window, holds it over the water. I'm going to drop the suitcase in the water. The guy goes, you son of a bee. Not enough. You're trying to force a nickel out of me that you don't deserve. You're trying to drown my grandson <sighs> in the suitcase. His grandson. God, it's almost as bad as the jokes that I heard on the Frank Morano show, and they were really bad. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to go to the podcast. I think it was last uh, Thursday morning at about 4 o'clock. Maybe the worst jokes that I've ever heard, starting with Frank Morano. It was so lame. So lame. Charles. Although I will tell you this. I see those yellow school buses. You know, the Orthodox uh, Jews, the bus drivers. You think they put up with any crap on their buses? I don't know. You think if you're a Booker boy, Matt, and you're on any of those yellow buses, you know, going to and from the shuls and synagogues, that you're going to be able to pull pull any stunts on that bus? 
I have a feeling that guy will get up with the payers dangling and beat the living daylights out of you. I got the old school bus, remember? When the nun used to get on that bus. Remember, you'd be going on a field trip and Sister Ruth was on that bus. Do you think anybody acted up on that school bus? That nun would hit you so hard with that three-foot ruler, your mother would feel the vibrations. And then they toss you off the bus, and you say, well, how am I going to get home? You figure it out, kid. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go, if we can, to Greg calling all the way from Phoenix, uh, Arizona, uh, which has received the most population increase of any city in the nation. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Greg. Hey, Curtis, I suppose it's 102 and breezy out here. Who wouldn't want to come to Phoenix? Wait, that's now, in the summer. I remember patrolling there. My red sateen jacket was hermetically sealed to my skin. <laughs> it was 120 degrees in the shade. Yep. It's getting there, 108 next weekend. Uh, Anyhow. Hey, look, let me, let me ask you a question, seriously. With all the, I mean, we know that New York City has a ton of problems to work with right now. So instead of working with all the problems, the crime and the education and all the other stuff, the LGBTQ community, and I'm not taking, taking a swipe at them, would rather go back in time 60 years and get a name taken off a bridge because the mayor at that time was not responding to crime and did not respond to the AIDS epidemic, and according to the Post, in quick fashion. I'd like to know who the heck, number one, who did respond to the AIDS epidemic at that time in quick fashion? And from what I can recall from living in New York, crime was a problem for decades, not just during Koch's reign in the office. Well, no, brilliant observation. And remember, Dr. Fauci was put in charge of the explosion of HIV AIDS, and he himself was off the beam so many times. But I will tell you what the real beef is. So here it was, Ed Koch was in the middle of a disease epidemic that we didn't really know anything about. I mean, it was similar to what we had with coronavirus, remember? All of a sudden, people were getting sick. We're wondering, what's going on? We really didn't have a grip on it like we have now. And he decided that... Through the New York City Health Department, he would shut down the city's gay bathhouses in 1985 because, obviously, there was the spread of AIDS there. There was unprotected sex going on all day long, all night long there. Gays, uh, to this day, many of them do not forgive him for that because they say, well, you let Plato's Retreat stay open. You know, that's a double standard, Plato's Retreat. Remember, they'd be fornicating and copulating. It was like Caligula. And then Koch doubled back and he said to the gay community, you're right, we're going to shut Plato's retreat too because then we began to learn that you could get AIDS not only through gay sex but through heterosexual sex. So you see where all this resentment comes from, Greg? Way back in 1985. Oh, my God. But six decades later, six decades. Because what? Is that because cancer culture is a big phenomenon right now? They waited six decades. They couldn't have well, done it. Well, the reason, ago. the reason, Greg, they're doing it now is because they can. And when you have AOC all out crazy, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez with the Democratic Socialists of America, the Justice Warriors, looking at her fellow Democrats and saying, "My little pretties, you will do as I say, 
or we will cancel you. There's Carolyn Maloney, lifelong friend of Ed Koch. No, I'm shrinking. I want to stay in Congress forever until I'm 128. Coward. They're all cowards. Tom DiNapoli, the state controller. He wants to remove that. Hey, Tom. I'm not going to say what I should say. Nice guy, Tom, but hey, you're wrong on this, Tom. And you know, yeah, in very similar situation to what Ed Koch was. And I see, need I say anything more, huh? Got a double disgraziata, a double shanda. And there, there are people now who are still closeted gays and lesbians who don't feel that they can come out. With all the liberations that you have now, with all the freedoms that you have now, hard-fought as they were, but by the Ed Koch's of the world, how quickly they forget. It's almost like they went to his grave, which is at the Trinity Cemetery, and they kicked dirt right onto his tombstone. one 800 848 Let's go to Adam, who's calling from Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Adam. Hi, Curtis. How are you? <sighs> See, this is, this is because so many of the hosts and hostesses you have no rules and regulations. A person can call up and say, first time caller, long time listener. Don't ever try that with me because I know you're lying. And don't ever thank me for taking your call. Oh, thank you for taking my call. I've just been soliciting uh, for f- phone calls for like the last hour. And never, ever, Adam, ask me how I'm doing, because I've had better days. Kabish, Kabish, Adam, Kabish. Yes, sir. Kabish. Okay. Kabish. Okay. Curtis, you know, I'm here in Jersey with my twin. We just canceled TV. We love listening to you when you're on. But I'm getting to the point. I was a chef 30. Do you know how many times, Curtis, I did Big time parties for guys who were, and saw you in a, you were so quiet, handsome, red beret guy, but I would listen, I would go out, walk around, I was every, and you're so brilliant, and so, I'm so, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this word, so pissed that you're not the mayor. My twin and I are Jersey boys, but we are just so happy that. Hey, wait a second. Is that your twin back there? Of New York, excellent. And we're very, very proud of what you do and who you are. All right, now hold on a second, Adam. Uh, yes. It's like uh, Cain and Abel, right? Uh, is that your brother there? He is. He's dying to talk to you. Hold on. Yeah, hey, put him on. Put him on. It's a family affair his here. His name is Gary, and you're like his hero. There you go, Curtis. Nice, quiet, calm. Curtis, sir. You are... You are Mr. New York. And if, if, if the city's going to be saved, it's going to be done by Curtis Fleewa and the Guardian Angels. Absolutely. Well, I'm what telling you, you Adam, we, we will do our part. And we certainly want Eric Adams, our new mayor, to succeed. He's uh, the swagger man. Got no plans. So hopefully he'll buckle down all weekend long. I saw his itinerary. I... He's going to restaurants. Restaurants. What, what is he going to restaurants for? He needs to go to neighborhoods. He needs to see where the crime is out of control. You can't base it on the fact that you were a cop for 22 years. 
Things change. That's why I'm still out in the subway, still out in the streets. Nobody can tell me, oh, you have no idea. You haven't been out there in a month of Sundays. It's different now. Crime patterns have changed. Technology has changed. You need to have your boots on the ground. That's the problem. He's wearing Ferragamos and designer suits. (laughs) You're not going to be riding the subway in that. Trust me. Because you'll never be able to wear that suit again. It'll be soiled and damaged. And you won't even be able to sell that at a Goodwill store after riding the subway. WABC. Check this out. No one knows New York better. The founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. And you can't compete against that. On 77 WABC. Now I'm gone to Rikers Island. He never won go to Rikers Island. He used to walk and screw up in face. But now he's spending enough time upstate. They now how many times have you seen stories about the rock, Rikers Island? And a, uh, it's like a tour group of elected officials will go out there and they come out and they're horrified. <gasps> oh, I was just subjected to uh, defecation education. Oh, oh, I've been soiled. Look, the inmates do that on purpose because they know that they can totally psych out any visit. I'll kill you. But the reality is there are major problems on Rikers Island. And unfortunately, this mayor, Eric Adams, was never a Rikers Island guy. Uh, I had no choice because uh, I was locked up on Rikers Island many times. You know, they don't give you a choice. They say, hey, Sliwa, we lost your paperwork. We're going to have to send you to the Rock a few days. Really? It's like I should be a rain. I'm already in the tombs downtown. You know, 100 cents. Nah, it's going to take a few days. Next thing I know, I'm on the Rikers Island bus. I'm with all these Gavones. I'm in a dormitory with 40 guys and one little African-American correctional officer woman there with a body alarm and nothing else. And they're all looking at me like, oh, God, we're going to tear you limb from limb the moment the lights go off. Feet don't fail me now. I mean, I've been in Punk City protective custody. I've been in uh, what they call segregation in the Bing. Been in uh, a cell. Had to share it with another Gavone and let him know straight up, I'm not your Maytag, pal. Let's get that straight right away. And you ain't getting none of my commissary. Oh, we're going to fight over those ramen noodles. Imagine, you're going to kill somebody over ramen noodles. And, of course, what do you think is the most desired product in the commissary? What do you think is the one thing that inmates would die for in the commissary? Let's see if anybody out there has done time. I know you have on Rikers Island. Or you could be a correctional officer, embattled as you are, where you always want a second serving of pancakes in the morning, made by the inmates, I might add. Oh, the pancakes are good. Yeah, can I have a second serving? You know what those inmates are putting in the pancakes? They don't care. It's free. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So let me give you the latest on Rikers Island. Huge problem under David Dinkins when he was mayor. So bad, the union actually took over Rikers Island. People don't know that. They took over the bridge that leads from Astoria, Steinway Street, right into Rikers Island. Took it over for like two days and just beat the living daylights out of all all the inmates who were giving them a hard time. It was total anarchy. Now, how is it Rudy Giuliani gets elected mayor? 
is like 19,000 inmates. They not only were housed on Rikers Island, they were housed on barges that Ed Koch had brought in from the Argentine campaign. That's right. He wasted our money buying these British troop transport barges. There was one, if you remember, in the East River, one over on the west side in the Hudson River. They had the barge over there by Hunts Point. They still have that. A thousand inmates are on the barge. They had the Queen's House, the Bronx House, the Brooklyn House. They had the tombs. How do I know about that? Because I've been in each and every one of them pretty much. And they had close to 20,000 inmates. Who did Rudy put in charge of the prisons that were out of control? Bernie Carrick. And the first thing that Bernie instituted, to his credit, was that uh, you can't be wearing your Timberland boots. You can't be wearing your Nikes, your Pumas. You're going to have to. That's it. You give it up until uh, you get released. We're going to give you Air Giuliani's. They took Skippy's, which was the most humiliating sneaker you could get, and they painted them fluorescent orange so it would glow in the dark. To be wearing a pair of Air Giuliani's as an inmate was a form of degradation. But all of a sudden, the slashing stopped. Inmates weren't slashing other inmates. Correctional officers weren't being attacked. Things settled down. Now, how is it that Rudy and Bernard Carrick could manage a system of close to 19,000 inmates with, sure, they had some problems from time to time. It's a prison. But nothing compared to now. So last year, you had 16 inmates who died in jail on Rikers Island. Some of them who hung themselves. Let me tell you the dark, dark, dirty secret. Because the inmates control the asylum, the Bloods, the Crips, uh, MS-13, the Trinitarios, the Dominican gang, they control a lot of the tiers. The correctional officers do not control them. They kill an inmate, and then they take the sheet, and they make it appear like he hung himself. So the correctional officer finally gets there, cuts him down, you know, like uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Sure, sure, he committed suicide. Yeah, you keep believing that in the federal lockup. That's now closed, by the way, downtown Manhattan. But they cut him down, and they said, oh, death by suicide. Really? Think of it. You could kill a guy. You could hang him there with a sheet. The correctional officer should be checking like every half hour. They don't have enough or they're too afraid because the gangs control the tiers. So you got to get control of the jails from the gangs. Now, Eric Adams spent more time in Hollywood than he spent checking on Rikers Island. He finally got there Friday afternoon to give some awards to correctional officers who have given not only meritorious but very heroic service out there because they're really outnumbered. He's got to make that a priority. The federal government is on the verge now of taking over Rikers Island because the city of New York has proven to be incapable of managing it. Most of it, obviously, uh, is the responsibility of uh, the former mayor, the part-time mayor, the dope from Park Slope, Bill de Blasio, who, by the way, is now living in the Marriott Hotel, downtown Brooklyn, at our taxpayers' expense. He owes hundreds of thousands of dollars to the city. He refuses to pay. And I have suggested in today's New York Post, treat him like any other citizen. Repo his house. He's got two houses on 11th Street and 7th Avenue. Oh, the real estate there goes for millions. Let him and Charlene live in one house and just repo his other house and pay off all the bills, right? 
That makes sense. Oh, no. You can't do that to the former mayor. Oh, yes, you can. Treat him like you would a normal citizen. But he never went to Rikers Island. Uh, My advice to Eric Adams is if he doesn't feel the need to go to Rikers Island, I volunteer. Because I know the place. I've been locked up there. C-74, C-76, high five. Let me give them a shout out, right? Because they'll say to me, got to give me a shout out on the radio. Come on, Curtis, give me a shout-out on the radio. I'm not going to give you Ugats, Bupkis. What do you mean a shout-out on the radio? The correctional officers need desperate help. They do not run Rikers Island. Let's get that straight. The media is afraid to go there. The elected officials are afraid to go there. I have no problem going there. I will be more than happy to volunteer my service to uh, the new mayor, Eric Adams, Because he ain't going there with his Ferragamo shoes and his custom-designed suits. Because guess what? One of the inmates will be wearing it. Oh, yeah. They'll strip him down like they would a carcass in the Mojave Desert. And be walking around and say, look, look, I got the mayor's threads on. Look at these Ferragamo shoes. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to uh, Olivia in Queens. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Olivia. Oh, happy Mother's Day to you, Curtis. Thank you. What memories you bring back to us, and thank you for all that you do for us here. But, you know, I think it's funny. I have a dear friend who's a corrections officer at Rikers. Oh, my God, they are saints. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you did it. But is it the honey buns that they enjoy? Yes. Oh, you got it, it, Olivia. Honey, honey buns are right? like currency. It's so weird that you, oh my gosh, it's so strange that he mentioned that. Right, out, out of everything, ramen noodles, honey buns. Now, yes. you see, legally you can't smoke any longer. It used to be yeah, menthols, no, Newports. Right. Oh, yes. wow. You, if you had a Newports, that was like currency. Honey buns, they will slash each other's throats to get a honey bun. Weird that you talked about this. At some other time, and, and I, I happened to ask him, oh, well, God, the honey buns. You know, yeah, it's a personal buns. experience. There I was housed, and a guy came up to me, and he said, hey, white boy, I want your honey buns. Oh, first you came for my honey buns. Then you came for my tuchus, right? And you know what you're going to get right now? A Popeye twister punch. Pow! Jam! Down he went. You know, and, and sadly, you're right. Uh, uh, you know, I also wish him well, Mr. Adams, but uh, he's no match for this. Well, look, male sad. maybe I'm, I'm going to offer him help. Uh, look, he doesn't want to deal with Rikers. And I got to be honest with him. Nobody really wants to deal with uh, Rikers. It's a hot mess. That's why they can't figure out whether to keep it open, close it. But you got to get control of it first before you do anything. Uh, these gangs, they know me. You know, I'll be walking in on the Bloods. You know, they'll declare revolution, the Crips, uh, MS-13, the Trinitarios. But you got to get control of the tears and you got to segregate the gang members away from one another. You can't keep them all together because they're like little armies in there, Olivia. And I think I have enough street smarts where I can say to the brand new correctional commissioner, Molina, Hey, Melina, you see uh, you see that tier 22? Let me tell you. You see Jose there? Uh-uh. He should not be on that tier. He's the general. He's the shot caller. They're not doing that, Olivia. They're not doing that. Wow. I know there are no, correctional officers. I know them personally, men and women. They have the toughest job in the city. Nobody has a tougher job 
than correctional officers in the city of New York, Olivia. And if they think you have their back, they will provide information. They will help get control of the system. But they also need some additional correctional officers. Now, the mayor, to his credit, has put money aside in the budget to hire them, but it's going to take months to train them. Over in Middle Village, they have their academy, uh, but they haven't trained the class in over two years. So I'll be more than happy to help the mayor and his staff get Rikers Island back. Is anybody volunteering to go to Rikers Island? (laughs) I'll straighten it out, right? You don't see there's not a long line, you know, uh, over the bridge in Steigwitz. I'll help. I'll help. No. Let's go to Bobby in Jersey City. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bobby. Curtis, how are you, buddy? The, uh, Curtis, it's a shame. You, you know, you would have been the best mayor. Nobody knows the city, ins and outs like you. You're not part of the machine. You know how you know the deal. We're not going to get into it. But, uh, Curtis, I propose we got to name a bridge after Curtis. How about the Casayusco, the Polish war hero who was uh, uh, oh, behind oh, West Point? Hold, oh, hold on, Bob. How about that? Hold on, hold on, Bob. <laughs> Hey, you got home. It's not uh, the Kosciuszko Bridge. It's the Kosciuszko Bridge. Oh, well, I'm only half Polish, Curtis. Am I hey, look, I'm half Polish myself. But no, how many people will say, oh, the Kosciuszko Bridge? You mean like the mustard? <laughs> I had some for Easter, Curtis. I love that stuff. I got to I gotta tell you. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What, what, did, what did the Polish generals do to New Jersey? That is the ugliest bridge I have ever seen in my life to Pulaski Skyway. It is the ugliest bridge in the world. Am I right, Bobby? My, yeah, my father took his, uh, my grandfather over on a Harley and, and right after World War II. And he got off the, he got off the motorcycle and said in Polish, you're crazy. You're crazy. But, uh, hey, Curtis, it's strong. It's made, it's all steel. Come on, they don't make bridges like yeah, that nowadays. Yeah, but it is a blight. It is ugly. By the, on, way, by, by the way, I got, I, I got to tell you a story, Bobby. But there it is on the Grand Marshal of the Pulaski Day Parade. You know, we're going to St. Patrick's Cathedral for the parade up Fifth Avenue. I got the tux and tail on. Naturally, my red beret. I'm not wearing the top hat. I come walking out, and then all of a sudden there's a tour bus. This is long before the lockdown and pandemic of March of 2020. And it's, it's people from San Diego where I have guardian angels. And they come up, oh, Curtis, Curtis, good to see you here. I didn't know that Polish people have a parade in honor of Roman Polanski. And I said, no, not the pedophile on a pedestal. Pulaski, Kosciuszko, heroes of the American Revolution. You know who, along with Lafayette, we are here from the French and uh, von Steuben of the Germans helped George Washington and the American Revolutionary Army defeat the strongest army in the world, the Redcoats. Now, let me give you a little inside story here. You know, all this gender identification, it's driving me nuts. Like, you, you can be identified by 72 different ways. Oh, you're pansexual, heterosexual, asexual, all this. So Steuben, General Steuben, who actually brought discipline to the ranks of the uh, Revolutionary Army at Valley Forge because they were about ready to jump ship, was totally gay. I mean, he was so gay, he had a posse of other Germans who were following him. I mean, they might as well have been on uh, Cherry Grove, Fire Island. Then they're trying to say now that Pulaski was part man, part woman. They've done a DNA test 
on General Pulaski. The guy's dead. He's in the ground for a few centuries. I think he's buried in France because he helped uh, the revolution in France. And he was scorned there. And then now they've exhumed his ashes. And they said, well, we're not sure if General Pulaski was a man, a woman, or a hermaphrodite. A hermaphrodite. Do we really think back in the Revolutionary War days they knew what the hell that was? This is crazy. This is real. They're exhuming the remains of General Pulaski. I think he's buried outside of Paris or somewhere in France. Because they think... He was a hermaphrodite. Now, that's a multisyllabic word. You want to ask me what a hermaphrodite is? I have absolutely not. I am so bowled over by 72 terms now that you can refer to your, yourself as. And by the way, if you claim I'm a pansexual, you have to refer to me as a pansexual. It's nothing to do with Peter Pan. I have no idea. I, you got to have an Encyclopedia Britannica of all these terms. Anyway, let's go to Keith in Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Keith. Hey, Curtis, I'm a retired city CEO. I thought maybe uh, we would share some, uh, you know, common interests or stories. Uh, I got hired near the end of 90, and I did 22 years. I uh, retired in 2012. Uh, The numbers were there, and it was time to go. And uh, I started off in um, C74, which at the time was known as ARDC. As you probably know, they had since uh, years ago changed that command to RNDC because of these egotistical egotistical maniacs who retired and wanted their name on the command or the jail, like uh, former Chief uh, Davern. So a lot of the jail names changed. They took the letters down. They put new letters up. But um, so a lot of uh, changes from the time I came in, and I was lucky enough to have uh, Commissioner Carrick in charge uh, back in the 90s for a while, and what a difference that made. Yeah, I got to tell you, before that, uh, under Dinkins, a very nice woman, uh, she had been the state senator, Catherine Abate. Yeah, yeah. Very nice, but she knew nothing about jails. The, the inmates uh, ran the asylum. Uh, you know, they ran all over her. So Rudy gets elected, and after an interim uh, correctional chief, he brings in Bernard Carrick. Uh, who basically made it a safe uh, atmosphere for inmates, for correctional officers, and for visitors. Remember, there were attacks on visitors, too. Visitors would come in, and then all of a sudden, there'd be all holy hell break loose, and they had to end the visits. And it was much more civil. Now, Rudy knows how to do it, and especially Carrick. You would think that the new correctional chief, Molina, would have a private meeting with Carrick and say, I don't want to talk about Dominion, Smartmatic, whether Trump should be president or Biden. Let's just talk corrections. Keith, the man is an expert. He knew how to handle a system of 18,000-plus inmates. Exactly. And if you remember, back around uh, the early 90s, uh, 92, 3, 4, Crack was still a raging epidemic throughout the city. So we were at about 110% capacity. Uh, and I, your accuracy is uh, amazing. Uh, I know you mentioned about 19,000 before. We were, we were exceeding 20,000 on the island besides the borough jails, uh, if you remember. Yeah. And uh, they were double-decking in the mods. Uh, they had um, inmates in the chapel, the gym. Um, your accommodations were if you were over in CIFM or C76, but uh, 
it was crowded. And of course that foments uh, obvious problems and, uh, you know, overcrowding, especially in the hot summers and so on, you know, tempers flare. Well, I will um, will tell you, Keith, in my many experiences on Rikers Island, the biggest problem was the circulation. If all of a sudden some of the inmates had uh, in the mess that night, the chow, beans and rice, the flatulence was a kicker. I am telling you the circulation in that play. That's the first thing you got to deal with is the circulation. It's horrible. So remember, in a cell, everybody has their toilet. If the toilet overflows, everybody's going to smell it for a month of Sundays. But it can be fixed up. It can be dealt with. Record right now, let's put all our differences aside. I'll be more than happy to help the the mayor's administration uh, to deal with Rikers. Nobody's volunteering. Do do we see a line outside of City Hall? I I volunteer my services to help on Rikers Island. There's no volunteers. Let's go to Rose in Flemington. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Rose. Hi. I think he got it wrong about Kosciuszko going to Paris. I had heard that it was in Savannah, Georgia, and the body was dug up, and then they found out that it was like a little ambidextrous there. I guess they had the same kind of vegetable sprays that they do now um, back those days, but uh, that stuff is um, kind of depressing, isn't it? Rose, can you believe this? You say Kosciuszko, I say Pulaski. But let's just say you're right and I'm wrong. I'll be a Pulaski. Yeah, yeah, Pulaski. Okay. Pulaski. Yeah. I say it's Pulaski. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, but right. No, I had heard – And listen, I'm an old person and I just get a lot – too much radio of all different persuasions. Never, never too much. No, well, the thing – well, God bless you, my dear. Uh, I used to ride the Lexington line without problems. I mean, these kids would come bouncing through from the from one – you know, Rose, do not digress. Another? Let's deal with the hermaphrodite. Yeah, well, I had heard it was it was in um, in Savannah. Okay, one of them is buried in Savannah. You are correct. I stand to be corrected. I defer to you, Rose, because today is Mother's Day. But whether it's I, no, I know, Mama. No, 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 no. Oh. Got smart about that. But didn't oh. want to give birth to no no kittens, no cows, okay. no nothing. All right, all right, all right. I'm, all right. I'm from I'm out here from the country, and I'm telling you. Not all women want to have children. <laughs> they got men to do the be the baby, you know. Rose, but there, are, much, there are many of... there are many women I know who should never have had children. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but the they should never have had children. Yeah, and then the rest of us who went to the the city to you know become uh, designers and chefs and all this and that, yeah. Uh, we were so grateful for your service because we could ride the train safely. I know, but Rose, the dilemma at this moment is they have exhumed the body. Exhumed the body hundreds of years later because they think, now you see Rose got me confused now. I'm getting vertical here. That either Pulaski or Kosciuszko were a hermaphrodite. Like, does it really matter that they had the anatomical device of a male but also of a female simultaneous does it really ma- let the guy rest in peace but at Koch he wasn't gay enough he was a self-hating gay really really 
at an age in which if you said you were gay, you were dead on arrival. That's it for you politically and maybe even in the private sector, never mind the civil sector. You sanctimonious hypocrites, you know. They can flash their parchment from the Ivy League schools, from the high-priced schools. How you know Frank Morano will be coming in here soon at 1 o'clock, you know. Dominic Carter is the buffer now so that I can't do an inquisition on Frank. But he'll flash, oh, I graduated NYU. What a waste of money that was. But they are not only intellectually stupid, but they throw around the fact that they've gone to college or university or they have a graduate degree or a a master's degree or a Ph.D. They're devoid of common sense. AOC, a bartender! Tells them at college he wasn't gay enough. He was a self-hating gay. That's 1972, right? AOC wasn't even birthed. And then Carolyn Maloney. Oh, you're right, AOC, please. Just let me get elected one more time. Just one more time, I promise. I'll do anything you want. Just let me get elected. Hakeem Jeffries whose uncle was the most virulent anti-Semite in the history of New York City. And that's saying a lot, Dr. Leonard Jeffries of City University, who believed that there were ice people, white people, and there were sun people, black people. And he hated all Jews, no matter if they were Sephardic, dark-skinned, or Ashkenazis, light-skinned. Let's go, uh, if we can, to Don in Trenton. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Don. How's it going, Curtis? How's it going? Hmm? I've had better days, Don. I've had better days. But go for it. I just want to let you know you are the best man that could have been mayor from New York City. And I don't know why the hell you didn't get elected. But I would have, if I lived in New York, I would have voted for you 100%. Any neighbors I would have met that didn't vote for you, I would have shot on sight. That's my first point. Hold on a second, Don. Do I need to hear that? Oh, if I lived in New York, I would have voted for you. Well, you didn't, and I lost fair and square, and I got to try to save this city. I got to try the concept of improve, don't move. Because everybody else is soon going to be moving south of the Mason-Dixon line to Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Texas, Tennessee, and parts unknown. Go for it, Don. Yeah, I just had a couple of questions about prison. I've never been to prison, uh, thank the Lord. And I was wondering, uh, is there like gangs like based on race or is gangs based on toughness? Are they gangs based on race or are they gangs... <laughs> Based on toughness. You know, Don, I think it's time for Scared Straight. You know, they don't have Scared Straight any longer uh, in Rahway. Oh, they won't call it Rahway because the citizens over there say, oh, you can't call it Rahway. To me, it'll always be Rahway. I think I'm going to have to take Don to Rahway and do a Scared Straight with him. You know, bad breath, no teeth, threaten uh, him to be my Maytag, you know, do one of those things, win an Academy Award. You know, I could do it with Don all over again. I know it's been done before, but isn't TV just a recycling game of everything that was successful before? We could do it again. Over the course of human history, there's been no savior of mankind. 
St. Francis of Assisi's, foregoing his wealth to be savior of all animals. And Curtis Sliwa, guardian angel and savior of New York City, protecting both man and beast. The Curtis Sliwa Show presents... Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. From bipeds to quadrupeds and everything in between. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Sliwa. Well, finally elevated you, Nancy, to getting top billing here at WABC for the Animal Welfare Hour, the most listened to, most requested, most called into segment of the uh, close to 20 hours that I do on the weekends when it's always broadcasting, Curtis. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I love joining you every week, but actually it's funny. I just wanted to mention the last call you had uh, during your last hour. I was I couldn't believe that they called you up for your knowledge of the rec room gaming situation in prisons. Yeah, well, uh, many things that you don't know about your husband, Nancy, I try to uh, protect you from. <laughs> because I've had to do some things uh, sometimes in lockup that mm, that's, uh, it wouldn't have entitled me to beatification and sainthood. Let's just say that. Okay, okay. Now, first, uh, we're going to open up our phone lines. We're taking all calls related to animals, not just dogs and cats, but every kind of an animal that could fit on Noah's Ark. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This past week, both you and I, Nancy, were able to go to uh, opening night for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Uh, baseball revived by uh, John and Margot Katsimatidis and their partners. Uh, that stadium had been empty for long before the lockdown and pandemic in March of 2020. So we have baseball now. Remember, we were standing there in the plaza getting ready to get on the Staten Island Ferry. There were all the pigeons, and they were trying to figure out how to follow me over the Staten <laughs> Island because they couldn't, you know, they, they don't fly into the ferry. So they were trying to figure out how do we follow the guy with the red beret who we follow all over the city. I know. I, th- I think uh, seagulls have control over that type of waterway, so the pigeons just have to wait back on shore. Yeah, but boy, there were, I, I would estimate by the time we got down to the battery, by the time we entered the uh, Staten Island Ferry over to catch uh, opening uh, night, there were probably 100 pigeons there waiting for me, trying to figure it out amongst themselves. How do we follow this guy over there? Oh, there was a lot of pigeons like along the route. It's like only when you get into the, um, the waterway do you see the seagulls. But I would say all the, the shoreline is predominated by uh, pigeons. Now, uh, let's go to issue number one here in the city of New York. Uh, We see many of our neighbors, uh, they have a ritual. They go out and they walk their dogs. Some of them take them to dog runs in nearby public parks. But I understand there was a uh, dog owner's poop fight that took place. Let's see. So so I I think you're talking about like the, uh, it's it's like the equivalent of like some of these public parks that you go to, right? They have uh, like clearly uh, delineated uh, playgrounds for children, and then some of them have things that are dog parks, uh, dog runs. But then there's some of these quasi spaces. So uh, apparently, in um, you know some area of like uh, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, there was people who started a little blog online because they were 
talking about this one particular area right now. And again, it's like, so these neighbors have different, you know, conflicting interests. Obviously, you want everyone to get along with it, but there's so like limitations in public space. So it really does raise the question when there's something that isn't really clearly marked, like whether it's for kids or animals, like, is there any priority, like who gets it? Or, you know, (laughs) so, I mean, it really started the conversation on that level. Well, you know, I've uh, seen the uh, dog area, the dog runs, uh, in McCarran Park, which is where a lot of hipsters and millennials have moved into. Previous to that, it was mostly uh, Italians there, North Drig Street, that whole area. Very, uh, it's Hipsterville now. And there are so many dogs there. It gets so crowded that, you know, by the time you get into the afternoon, Nobody has come in with the pooper scooper. And I've actually seen some of the uh, dog walkers, dog owners, dog runners get into pitch battles because there's just not enough turf because there's just too much poop. I mean, it is a, it is a difficult – and actually that's funny. Part of the uh, conversation that continued in this blog that was referencing this was it's like either side of the – you know, whether you're like a dog owner or you're, you have a child – they were saying, oh, why don't you move to Long Island? There's more space. But again, th- this is just a reality. There's limitations of space. So, I mean, I think the the same way that, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to have cats in New York City because, you know, you can have them in your home, and that makes a lot of sense. Once you start having dogs, which clearly have um, a much higher need for being outdoors and running and having like sort of that access to space but then the same argument can be made for children as well like maybe they should all grow up in you know more rural environments and be able to go to parks and you know so again it, it but it was just funny how this sort of um you know sparked off all because this tiny little space in a park where there's very limited public space and some people said we want our dogs to enjoy and some people said we want our kids well you're a perfect example of that you grew up out in bohemia in uh Suffolk County, amongst a lot of animals with a lot of space. Uh, so the kids were able to play. The animals had a lot of space. It seemed like uh, for them at that age, it was so much better of a growing experience. I mean, for me, like, I, I definitely enjoyed the fact that I had a yard. I could play in a yard. But what was really cool, too, was I was literally a block and a half away from Connecticut State Park. And I could walk down the block and be in this state park and, and just enjoy it like that. I mean, you think about the, the same equivalent situation for uh, young people growing up in the city. I mean, they're fighting for tiny little park spaces, which, I mean, do, you know, pales in comparison. So it really does raise the question, like, where's the best place to raise kids? And, I mean, again, they're, they're growing up different ways, so that's something to be acknowledged. Our number is one 800 This is the Animal Welfare Hour featuring my wife, Nancy Sliwa. Before we go on to the other subjects, uh, speaking of walking uh, your dogs uh, from your apartment, your condo, your co-op, your home, your place of business, we now take our cats on a walk. We call it a constitutional <laughs> twice a day. And they actually go out and they walk around as if they were dogs off a leash. Why That's do you true. why do you think that is? Well, I mean, obviously our cats are in a, a pretty tiny space, so as much as they can experience anything outside the apartment, I think they certainly appreciate. But they're still very timid, 
So I've seen only a few times since like the entire time I've been in New York City where someone's walking a cat on a leash. But I mean, that's a very particular cat personality and also cat breed. I mean, you can't really do that with most of them. So I think for, for our cats, it's like if they can walk into the hallway, is safe enough where they feel comfortable. But I mean, we can never get them outside. But I mean, again, I think that's just their nature. They want to explore. But I mean, there's a, a limitation of safety. And at this point, they've grown up knowing only a, a specific zone. So, you know, the well, more yeah, they can in fact, explore, the uh, I turn to the cats because <laughs> we uh, live in a uh, apartment of 328 square feet uh, with so many cats. And I turn to them and I say, Tuna, Wolverine, Athena. A big little one, crooked head, uh, whiskers. It's time for your constitutional. And they actually go in the hallway and they start walking up and down, walking up the steps, walking back as if they were uh, a group of senior citizens taking a constitutional <laughs> a walk. Oh, no, they they definitely enjoy it. And, and unfortunately, we have several floors in the building, so some of them run up really high. Yep. Anyway, uh, story number two has to do with the bayou in the state of Louisiana. There are so many uh, mosquitoes now that apparently it's so out of control that they're using drones, drones to control the mosquitoes. How how are they doing that? Well, so it's, it's the the same uh, type of um, like um, anim- like mosquito repellent that they utilize for you know any area. I think there's harder to reach areas is what they're saying uh, in Louisiana. So they're putting the, you know, the same type. So, I mean, sadly, it's pretty much poison. So, you know, whatever they're doing, they're trying to alleviate the overpopulation of mosquitoes. Now, again, it's like it depends upon what the issue is with the mosquitoes. There's certain times that uh, different states are actually releasing mosquitoes, even genetically modified mosquitoes, like in an attempt to alleviate some other sort of ancillary cause. So, I mean, you know, it's an interesting sort of thing. I mean, mosquitoes, again, right, they procreate so much. There's so many of them. Once you release them into the the atmosphere, they're there. But what they're trying to do is they're trying – but, again, I don't think they're thinking through the the ancillary effects, which is pretty much that they're – you know, spraying poisons in these, what they're calling hard-to-reach areas. Well, if they're hard to reach, they actually don't know what may exist there that would actually have a negative effect to the poison. So I think that's something to be examined as well. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Then there's the story of the puppy that was rescued by a Massachusetts family that turned out not to be a puppy at all. In fact, what was it? Um. (laughs) Well, now... Can't you tell the difference between a normal puppy and a coyote pup? Well, I mean, I, I think at, at small ages, they a lot of the animals, they have a tendency to either look very similar or it's a, extremely difficult to tell what they are. So, I mean, I think the, the, um, the young age is what makes it tough. So they thought it was a dog. It turned out to be a coyote. But the good news was they were able to bring it to a location um, like within a 24 hours so that, you know, there wasn't any issue because a lot of times what happens is when uh, anything that's considered um, a coyote or a raccoon the minute or a fox, like whatever, the minute they find them, 
the protocol is to euthanize them and then after the fact uh, take the rabies test because you can only take it if you have like a certain, um, basically you have to kill them. So the good news is this um, little baby coyote was only with the family for one day, so it was able to be uh, shifted to a rescue area where now at least it'll at least you know won't be euthanized, which is good. Now a lot of people don't know that your nickname is Lone Wolf, and there was a coyote loose in Central Park, close to near where we live, and you would drag me out there in the wee hours of the morning under the cover of darkness through the meadows, through the rambles. Uh, over into the north part of Central Park, to the Central Park. You, you were tracking a coyote. Now, <laughs> what gives you the skills to track a coyote that's on the loose? Well, I, I, I was just going by uh, basic instinct, but uh, <laughs> you're right. I, I don't necessarily, but I, I'm just saying because of my naming convention, I think that I pretty much know where they would go. I mean, plus, I've been in the park, uh, you know, enough times to know where are places that are least tracked by people, which would probably be the most likely area where any animal would go if they're not trying to be observed. So, Well, I remember it was 3 in the morning. Uh, it was a partial moon, not a full moon. And you're looking at tracks, and you're saying, those are coyote tracks. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? I mean, they could, they could have been dog tracks, but I was, you know, I was on the hunt at that moment, so who knows? Absolutely. So if you see Nancy in the future, her nickname is Lone Wolf. She was actually in the park tracking the coyote while everybody else was, ah, get out of the park, there's a coyote. You were actually tracking the coyote. I was trying to. Anyway, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It's our Animal Welfare Hour uh, featuring my wife, Nancy, uh, animal rescuer par excellence. And then let's finally talk about, you had mentioned the fox. There was a huge story about a wild fox that killed 25 flamingos and a duck at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and people were appalled. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this was in a uh, zoo, so the facility, they have the protocol for uh, maintaining safety for these animals because obviously, uh, you know, they can be attacked from outdoor wild-type animals. So uh, somehow this fox got into this uh, bird-type of cage, which was housing ducks and flamingos, and by the time that the the staff had been aware of what had happened, uh, this fox had killed uh, almost like 40 flamingos and several ducks. So, I mean, so again, right, so now it goes into the story of, I, I think the, the big thing from this is, you know, they really need to take safeguards and make sure that these animals aren't, aren't vulnerable because, you know, they're taking the responsibility of housing them, and utilizing them, you know, for profit, so to speak, because they have people visit the zoo. So, you know, it's incumbent upon them to keep them safe. And, you know, they had like, you know, these protocols, we, we visited two times a day, we make sure. But the thing is that the thing was, once they got the fox, their, again, their protocol is they just euthanized them. And then they knew that the fox had like a little, I don't know what you call them, like, Tiny foxless, <laughs> like four of them. So they just euthanize them all. But so it was just a sad day for everybody. Uh, but again, hopefully they can just do something going forward. 
to keep the perimeters a little safer because this is really the name of the game. Like you're housing them. It's like your security. That's your responsibility. So well, you know, it's amazing uh, at the number of animals who reside in Central Park. Speaking of Washington, D.C., there's this magnificent urban park called Rock Creek Park. They've had songs written about it. Uh, and I've been in there a few times patrolling it when they had some crime problems with the Guardian Angels. I saw foxes in there. I saw deer in there. I saw all kinds of animals. You're right in the middle of Washington, D.C., and you're saying, how could this be that there be so many animals in an urban setting because there's really no direct way in. There's no direct way out. Somehow the animals have figured out that that's like a sanctuary for them. Well, I mean, it, it's, it, in many ways it's very similar to the way that there are uh, feral cat populations in New York City. It's not that it's an ideal uh, environment for this to exist, but it's just a reality of what happens when you have animals in an urban environment and they procreate as quickly as they do. Like, this is something that needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, a lot of the uh, city gov- governments, local governments, whatever, uh, even the shelters, they're not addressing it at the, you know, sort of proactive stage where, oh, we need to develop plans of making sure that, you know, they're all spayed and neutered so we don't have this overpopulation. They try to handle it after the fact when it's a problem, and then they wind up just killing them in mass. So this is what needs to be recognized. You can take care of the problem and not have to deal with it again recurrently every year and year if you actually do the smart thing on the front end. Our number is one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Let's go to the phones, Nancy. First up in the queue is Helen calling from Hampton Bays. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Hour of WABC, Helen. Uh, hi there. Um, calling, and I'd like to reference, uh, I, I guess I could say I first relate to you because I was born in Coney Island uh, Hospital, as you know, and I first steps on the boardwalk, and I also lived in Kentucky as a kid, back and forth. So hmm. it was very uh, different. But um, now living on Long Island, the thing I'm seeing really is the housing, housing shortage. And the thing is, if you rescue an animal, and then you can't find any place to live. And recently, I must say, the other thing that makes it even tighter is I had a, a landlady that was very elderly, and she died, and her uh, adult children sold the place. So now, for me to try to find a place with my cats, it's almost like I would have a better chance putting up a sign saying, I'm selling crack, because nobody wants to rent to anybody that's got a pet, let alone more than one. It's like, oh, my God, really? And everybody that owns a house can have their pets and when you don't own a place, it's really, really tight. Well, actually, and Helen, just, uh, I and Nancy, we've had yeah. this discussion. And Nancy, you being a, a lawyer, you've explored the laws, the rental agreements, the leasing agreements. What are the rights uh, of tenants and what can a landlord say to you or do to you to prevent you from having animals that are part of your family? Okay, so the sad reality is that the law is on the side of private landlords, you know, if, if whatever types of parameters they want to set up around renting, which includes uh, pet ownership. So it really is dependent upon having landlords that are more pet friendly. So, I mean, the exact situation, I mean, this is a reason why a lot of people have to relinquish their pets. I think 
again, until the laws change, which obviously we know is t- usually takes a long time for any law, maybe there should be other um, steps that are taken. For instance, you have pet-friendly owners. Those types of people should be prioritized on, like, any sort of renting list or things like that. Like, when people are looking for things and you always, always see, oh, pet-friendly, like, when I've looked at things in the past, I look at, oh, pet-friendly. So that is a um, sort of a selling point, so to speak, when people are looking to rent. And it's, But the, that's the reality. In a private situation, they can do what they're doing. Now, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about a situation once you're in a location, that's different because it has a lot to do with how you uh, remove tenants, things like that. But if you don't want to deal with that sort of headache, you really just want to look for pet-friendly places. And, again, I think the more that's prioritized, the more people get to know the fact that, oh, that is an important thing, because it is really ridiculous that people would have to relinquish their pets just because the landlord doesn't want them for some reason that doesn't make sense. And the more you can elevate the people who are willing to accept them, the better. Let's go to Robert in Las Vegas. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Hour of WABC, Bobby. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I think that's, that was a, that was to you, Cutters. Yeah, yeah. It must, must have been to me, uh, a mother. You know, I don't want to talk about the race yesterday there at uh, Churchill Downs. Uh, the mother did not win. But go ahead, Robert. Uh, Curtis, I want you to keep me on the line until I ans- hear your answer so I don't get disconnected and I don't find out what you say. All right. And what's your question? How do you keep so many cats from becoming like Garfield uh, so too, being heavy? Too heavy. All right. Uh, I'm not the expert on that. Uh, I keep giving our cats those temptation treats that they love, Nancy. But if you had to hone it down so that a, a cat or another animal or a dog uh, wouldn't gain weight. How do you monitor their weight? Okay, so in terms of uh, what I'm aware of regarding cats is that you want to keep in mind the uh, personality that they have, the nature that they have. So they are natural predators, which means they're not hunting all the time. They just eat periodically. So I think the biggest mistake in terms of uh, um, cats gaining weight is that if you leave food out all the time for them, what happens is it sort of engages them all the time and their metabolism uh, naturally slows down because they constantly have that scent of a, a food stream. So what's important is you put down food at certain times, you leave it out for short periods of time and let them eat, and then after that you take it away so it keeps up with what would be their normal outdoor existence and then sort of maintains their metabolism. I think that's a big thing right there. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. You're listening to the Animal Welfare Hour here featuring Nancy Sliwa. Let's go to Jimmy in Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here. Hi. Nice to talk to you, Nancy. I need I need to ask a question. I have a cat. She's like the Queen of Sheba. It's only her. I got her 14. Years, um, I want to try to cut her nails, and what happens is I go to this uh, place on Staten Island. They want two hundred bucks oh to cut her, her nails, and I'm like, they're nails, they're not you know strips of gold. But I adore my cat. I know I sound. People tell me I'm a little ridiculous. I said, and I don't think you're uh, caring enough for animals. I adore. I really do love my animal like my own child. It is she and I, and her name is Miracle. However. 
how do I tame her to, and I don't take her out because once I do, she gets massively anxious and well, I don't want to tax her. Do you post? I do, but I use them. She don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she looks at me like, what do you want me to do with that? Okay, I've gotten, there's actually a lot of creative scratching posts out there for cats where they don't even realize they're doing it. So I have things that look like tiny little cat couches, and then all of a sudden, you know, one of the cats wants to fall asleep on it, and then we'll actually start, you know, using it to trim down the claws. So maybe you have to get creative with the scratching posts, because sometimes you just hang a thing on the wall. They're like, yo, I'm not interested in that. It's not entertaining enough. But if you set it up in a certain way where they're lured into a little area and then they inadvertently start scratching, it's like maybe that could be an easy way to start with it. Well, now, what about those that decide to try to declaw their cats? Uh, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's totally – no, that's, that's actually it, – it's, it's the equivalent of uh, cutting off, like, fingers at the uh, – you know, the, 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 the nubs, like the middle of the fingers, like picture – Every little part of, like, looking at your hand and that middle part, right there. It's like the knuckles, like taking them off at the knuckles. It's, it's something that's and, – and then it makes it painful for cats the rest of their life. They're actually in pain all the time, and there's a lot of people who have these cats, and it becomes too painful to use the litter, and then the cat starts, you know, going outside of the litter box – and it's viewed as a problematic behavior, like, oh, maybe they're sick or maybe they're just being bad. And it's like, no, it's actually painful them, for them to step on the litter. So there's so many reasons that it's so – I mean, there's states – I think um, just recently the second state – I think it was Massachusetts is the second state in the United States that has now banned the chlorine because of the way that it is. Again, unless you're – you know, unless you understand what it is, you think, oh, they're just like trimming them at the – you know – the end of their like you know toenails or something. No, they're actually taking it off at the knuckles. So you can't. So this is what it's from. You can't really take your pet for a pedicure, can you? No, but but again, like I said, if you if you make these little creative ways to uh, you know put things down that they're interested in that they happen to start clawing at, you know, then they're actually doing it naturally, which is what it should be. I mean, I've seen like super creative ways where sometimes people have uh, you know different things that are almost like a plant, you know, like a, you know, semi little trees, like something in a, a, like a potting plant. And so the cats can do that. So they want to do that by nature. They want to trim their claws. So it's just a question of, you know, presenting them something that's going to intrigue them and they'll do it by themselves. You don't have to worry about it. Now, if they're not able to do it, meaning the individual cat, uh, is there a way you can trim the nails of the cat without getting anywhere near the point of declawing them? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, we have a, like, little trimmer and stuff like that. So, I mean, we do that ourselves with the with the cats here. Um, and, again, I, I think it's more of if, if you have a cat that maybe is a little high-stressed, uh, you know, getting very tensed, it's always going to be having that reaction if you try to bring it to get, um, you know, like, you know, trim the nails. So the goal would be to try to make that a comfortable situation at home. And it may take some time. Like, you know, you, you're not going to get it the first time, like, out if they're really uncomfortable with it. But, you know, you start on small little steps, like grabbing their paws or starting to bring, like, the little cutter into the area. And after a little bit, I mean, if you're persistent enough, 
you know, eventually they realize it's not a big deal and they'll they'll come around. So, I mean, I don't think it's ever a lost cause to just do it slowly. Like, just wait till they come around. They might be a little bit nervous about something. Well, we have the matriarch uh, of our cat colony is uh, Athena. What kind of cat is she again? Uh Norwegian forest cat. A Norwegian forest cat. She's a real diva. And she always wants a pedicure and a manicure. I mean, she actually puts her paws out and expects you, Nancy, to get the file out, to file her nails, clip them, and then paint them as if you were in a nail salon and you were a Korean attendant attending to a woman coming in there to get a pedicure and a manicure. She just really likes to be brushed. I think that's Athena's big thing because she has such a big coat of hair. So anytime that I'm brushing any of the other cats, right away she's like on point. Like she wants to let you know she's next, like it's important to her. I mean, you could be brushing your own hair and she comes over to you because she wants to be brushed next. It's like... It, it's like she'll, she'll wake up out of a total dead sleep because she hears you brushing her hair. So, yeah, she's, she does like to be groomed. She is the diva of all divas. Anyway, uh, you can call with any questions or statements you have about any number of animals, all of whom that can fit on our Curtis and Nancy Noah's Ark. Here during our Animal Welfare Hour, our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. The Curtis Lewa Show presents Curtis's Ark with Nancy Sliwa. Now, with Nancy Sliwa, here's Curtis Lewa. Let's go right to the phones, uh, Nancy. Uh, next up in the queue of our Animal Welfare Hour is Stanley calling from Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Stanley. Yes, I have a service parrot with his little red vest. But uh, I have a problem with him cursing. Do you have any suggestions how I can get him to stop cursing? Because uh, it's a little bit of a problem on airplanes. Uh, what about parrots, uh, Nancy? That uh, you and I, we have visited people who have parrots. And they actually, it's almost as if they're in conversation with you. <laughs> some of them actually do pick up some of the foul language of people around them. Uh, why is that? I've never quite been able to figure that out. Well, I mean, they. Well, I, I think if they're picking it up, chances are you're saying it consistently. So, <laughs> given the vast amount of conversation that most people have in front of their birds, unless they're trying to have them say a certain statement, it probably would just. Um, be an indication that that's a language they use on a regular basis. Well, I will tell you this. I would suggest uh, you probably don't want to have your parrot, your talking parrot within proximity of the radio or the stream or the app that you're listening to me, Curtis Sliwa, on. Because can you imagine a parrot imitating uh, Sliwanics, a language that I have created, uh, which uh, I have botulized the English language. I use fractured phrases, spoonerisms, malaprops. Can you imagine that, Nancy? Um, I I can't imagine it. I can. Yep. Yep. Well, what a nightmare that would be. Uh, uh-huh. 
Anyway, our numbers one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's go to Michael in Pennsylvania. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Michael. Hey, Curtis and Nancy. I've called you before to let you know about uh, feeding the outside cats. I've got like fifteen of the cats. I live in the Poconos. We have like you know all kinds of animals out here too: deer, fox, bear, uh, coyotes. Even once in a while, if you go up to the state game and you'll see a coyote. But uh, in my backyard, I've got like 15, and it's springtime, and now it's going to be like 30 pretty soon, you know, if, if I'm not careful. But I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I'm old, all right, so I can't chase them and catch them all. I did have a, have a heart trap, but I gave it to my ex to have her uh, catch a cat that she wanted, and she actually needed it, so I have to get it back from her. The cat, actually, their mother was the cat woman. She just, like, called it in and fed it every day, and it just it came in. So that cat's cool. Uh, Butterscotch is her name. Uh, my cat inside is called Nightmare because all he likes to do, I rescued a kitten. Uh, I didn't even know he was in the house until the first night that he snuck in with the outside, was feeding the outside, and he came in. He, she, I'm not sure what it is, really. I don't know. If, I can't even pick it up. It's still feral, but it's a kitten, and it's, you know, maybe five months old, and I feed it every day, and I was wondering, I I was glad that you said about putting the food away, because I keep pouring it out in bowls, and then leaving it out there for the cat, and then, you know, wondering why it goes in a litter box, and just like, like a human, you know, it does this business like a lot, and uh, you know, it's it's got to get rid of the food somehow. But it likes to eat, and it's very happy with eating. And the old cat I had was a uh, a Russian blue, and that was uh, that turned into a fat cat. From every time I had coffee, he wanted his uh, wet food opened. He wanted a fresh can of wet food, so I'd pour the whole can out, and I realized you can't feed him that much because, you know, he got big and then he got the nickname of uh, Fat Cat from Cocoa Boy to Fat Cat because he was cocoa colored. So now, uh, Nancy, uh, Michael sounds like he's got quite the dilemma here. He thinks 15 will soon become 30. He's up there in age. Okay, yeah, so I definitely would suggest um, if, if you have the ability to either just go online and start checking some stuff out, or also reaching out to like local, um, you know, like uh, animal rescues, uh, even the shelter. Sometimes they'll be able to advise you like how you can do this. Because what you're saying is, if you have, I know the the way that it works in New York City is if you have a certain amount of cats that maybe you need to have something, uh, you know, th- them fixed, and there's a lot of them, then usually once you start reaching out. You know, you can be plugged into more of these, like, local communities who who do the same thing. Like, they're rescuing the cats. And like you said, there needs to be a certain number of the the traps. And there needs to be uh, coordination with uh, transportation and then also holding space. But a lot of this does already exist. So if you recognize that this is going to be an upcoming issue... I um I mean again I, and I can you know this is something that if you start looking online if you have any issues with uh, figuring it out you can reach out to me too but there's usually lots of people who work locally who do exactly this type of uh, coordinated effort for this right reason like you said because 
those those 15 cats that turn into 30, then it will eventually be 60, then it's 120. So you're right, it, it starts there. But if you, you can sort of nip it at the bud, that's what's so important. Now, uh, how can people reach out to you, Nancy, if they're in need of uh, further information or communication about their animal issues? Uh, Nancy at guardianangels.org. So Nancy at guardianangels.org, or you can go on to uh, guardianangels.org. That's guardianangels.org, the website, and look at the Guardian Angel Animal Protection Division, hit the tab, and you can see all the great work that Nancy and others do in protecting all kinds of animals, no matter where they are, whether they're feral, they're outside, or they're living indoors. Let's go to Howie in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Howie. Hey, what's up? Um, I just want to let you cat owners know that you can have your cats be uh, emotional support animals by a lawyer or a doctor. Because uh, I hate seeing uh, cat, ha- cat house cats out in the street homeless. So I had to call in and say something. Normally, I would just call in and you know talk to you on your show, Curtis. But uh, I got uh, two cats, and I love cats. And uh, I just want these cat owners to know emotional support animal by a lawyer or a doctor will help them from being thrown out the house. Okay? Wow. That's interesting. Uh, in fact, uh, Nancy, uh, we could have, when she was alive, Hope could have been my emotional support animal during the long campaign. When I get home in the wee hours of the morning, you would say, I don't want to hear it. The other cats would walk away. The only cat that seemed to have any empathy or sympathy for me was Hope, who would perch herself right on my shoulder, and I could talk to the wee hours of the morning, and Hope would be the only one listening to me. Yeah, I mean, that is true. Hope had an extremely particular personality, and it, it was funny, like, sometimes when we had little difficulties with the tiny cats who were incoming into the apartment, all I would do is just stick them on Hope, and Hope would take care of them, and they'd calm down. So, I mean, Hope had this natural sort of tendency to calm every living creature down. That's for sure. Let's go to Natalie and Howard Beach. Your turn to be heard here on the Animal Welfare Edition of WABC. Natalie. Well, hi, Curtis and Nancy. Uh, there was a feral cat, actually more than one. There were, were five that I have been feeding over the years, the same five. I even had set up shelters for them, those kitty two shelters. And uh, one of them broke its leg, and I knew something was wrong when I saw the back leg held all the way up. And that happened five days ago. So it took me four days to catch the cat. And I think she was just getting weaker and weaker. And I brought it to the vet. So now the vet has her there in Howard Beach. And uh, I'm waiting uh, until they're ready to do a surgery. So the options they gave me was to either amputate the back leg, it's the back right leg. The bone is broke, like if you if you looked at the way it is, I don't know the scientific terms for the legs, but where the pore is right after the pore, the bone is split. You can see it on the x-ray. So uh, the options are to either amputate or to get a specialist in to look at the cat with the pins. Now I already have a quote, an estimate, for an amputation, I hate the thought of the amputation because I thought if it was my leg, would I immediately want to go to an amputation? And the answer, of course, is no. Not if the pins could save my leg. Yeah. And yet, I'm going to have to take the cat in because obviously I can't put her back out on the street with an amputated right, leg. Yeah. And then even if she had pins in her, 
I would be concerned because how would I be able to monitor for like progress? Monitor the recovery, yeah. 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 So uh, the question is, I don't know in your experience, have you ever had the experience where you had to put pins in the cat's leg to save the leg? And are there complications involved? Because the bill is enormous as it is. I'm getting a quote for an amputation of $3,400 with everything involved. It's not only amputation, but everything along with it, including, you know, the boarding for the medical time that it takes for the cat to heal, et cetera. So the, the question is, if I went for the pins, and if, if this usually involves complications, I could see myself going into six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars which I really can't afford to do. So uh, the, it's a double question. Would, should I go for the pins, number one? And number two, if I were to go for the pins, are there any organizations that might be able to help? I, okay. I don't expect Okay, to so, yeah, this, okay, this is the best advice I can give you. Um, I, first of all, I totally understand the situation you're talking about, and it's such a horrible predicament to be put in because, in theory, you want to do everything you can for them, but then you're also looking at, okay, what are the practicalities? So there's like this big combination of, but again, I think if everyone had, you know, unlimited funds, they would do everything they can. But, I mean, it, it's not realistic all the time to do that. But in this situation, now I know someone who recently had brought the cat to uh, their vet, and then the, you know, the suggestion was now the ASPCA, they have um, situations like where, they help uh, people, and they're they're willing to do the surgery, and it's um, you know limited to almost free of charge. So that could be an option to do because I mean there I mean that's one organization I know for sure that does accept uh, some of these cases where they're already at the you know in that situation where they need something to be done, but the financial uh, you know issue is just like looming. So they definitely do that. So I would say ASPCA, contact them, tell your vet that you're dealing with, contact them. And it may take, you know, 24 hours, 36 hours, but they'll give you an answer and you'll know right away. So that, I would say first, you know, first thing, reach out to them because they actually do that. Now, uh, Nancy, if people have uh, similar kinds of scenarios, similar kinds of problems, again, how can they reach you to try to connect uh, if not with the uh, the work that you do directly, with the work that you know that other groups uh, do on a regular basis, can assist them with their animal situation. Well, again, I mean, if um, you know if anyone can reach me, uh, email nancy at guardianangels dot org, and obviously, depending upon uh, where they're located or what their uh, particular inquiry is, I mean, I can put them in touch with uh, any other types of different groups that can assist them accordingly, you know, so yeah, definitely Nancy at guardianangels.org. All right. One final uh, call. It's Mark calling from Jersey. Your turn to be heard here on the animal welfare edition of WABC, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I was, uh, listening to your fellow there in the Poconos, Pike County Humane Society has a spay and neuter program. They offer there's a, there's a lot of programs available just have to do the research, but uh, yeah, you can get a low-cost spay and neuter and uh, do your own trapping. Sometimes they'll lend you the cages to do it and then pick them up when they're done doing the job. Oh, no, yeah, and totally agreed. It's like that, that actually is the same way it works in, for instance, uh, New York City, too. And, you know, if, if you do something where you take a course, it could be online, in person, maybe two, three hours, all of a sudden – 
you have um, available at your fingertips, like, you know, you know, having additional traps and getting low-cost spay-neuter, but, you know, obviously always having, a, you know, a, a couple extra people behind you. So if you're ever interested in doing this, I would tell people, you know, not only uh, get the certification yourself, but have a couple of your friends who you can count on in the future to do the, you know, sort of help you in this effort. You know, you can all go get, uh, you know, the certification one night, and then you're all ready to go and make it happen. Well, we'll continue same time, same place uh, next week. Uh, if you missed any of this uh, Animal Welfare Hour, you can get it in the podcast at wabcradio.com. That's wabcradio.com. And we are gearing up uh, to do a second podcast that will be uh, have specificity about animal issues here at WABC in which you'll get both the video and the audio. So, again, thanks for all your expertise, Nance. Thank you for having me on again, Curtis. No problem. Up next, wow, we got a job for Dominic Carter, who in the latter years of Ed Koch was a very, very good friend of Ed Koch, who now seems uh, to be under attack in death with his front page piece above the fold of Sunday's New York Times that talks about the secrets of Ed Koch. You would think the New York Times were a tabloid. Udiskratziar. W-A-B-C. Ed Koch. This is Ed Koch on W-A-B-C, and we're going to hear from Herb, who lives in Queens. Okay, Herb. Good morning, Mayor. Yeah. Uh, first, I want to welcome you. It's, uh, we finally have someone who's truly qualified to talk about our problems in the city and country. And uh, Thank you. I missed you. You were, you were a straight talker, and Thank sometimes you. people can't stand to hear the truth. You know, uh, Dominic Carter, that was Ed Koch. This was after he was mayor, three terms. He tried to go for a fourth, lost to uh, David Dinkins in the primary, uh, and then came to WABC where he was a fixture in the uh, mid-mornings. He would come on at 11 o'clock, 45 minutes, and then it would be Paul Harvey. Uh, The year that he was on, when he was friendly with Rudy, he was the top-rated show at WABC. He had more ratings than Rush, who followed from 12 to 3, and the king of talk radio, Bob Grant, from uh, 3 to 7. Then, in typical, typical Ed Koch form, he got into a battle with Mayor Rudy Giuliani and supported Al Sharpton against Rudy, and his numbers just <laughs> fell off the map. <laughs> but he was a great talk show host. He, he understood the rhyme. He understood the in and out. He understood the need uh, to do commentary. But I have never seen such an attack on an iconic figure like this in which, with today's story in the New York Times, is like a tabloid. Above the fold, the secrets of Ed Koch. And his critics who have emerged, fair-weather friends, who would say he wasn't gay enough and he was a self-hating gay. And I'm saying to myself, Dominic, Carolyn Maloney, she wouldn't have been a congressperson without Ed Koch's support. She actually was the one who came up with the idea to name the 59th Street Bridge Ed Koch. And now she's saying, no, take the name off. Hakeem Jeffries, who in the future might be the Speaker of the House, you know, once there's no more Nancy Pelosi, he is the nephew of Dr. Leonard Jeffries, the worst anti-Semite in New York City. Koch knew that, but endorsed him by saying, hey, that was your uncle, that's not you, and did a radio ad for him, and Grace Meng. And now all of a sudden, all of them wanted Ed Koch's support. He gave it without which they might not have won their their heated primaries. 
And now they've all done a Ides of March on him, taken out the long knives and stabbed him in the back. Politics, um, New York City style, no other way to say it, Curtis. Um, you know, it, it hurts me what what's going on because um, Ed Koch, the Ed Koch I knew was a was a good man, right? And um, we never, not once, discussed his sexual orientation in all the years of working with him. Um, we got to be close towards the tail end of his life. And what makes those matters worse that you just said, the Ed Conch towards the end of his life was not the same real hard, aggressive political animal of when he was mayor. And so, you know, it, it it's just bad politics. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's people that, you know, smile in your face and stab you in the back. But think of it. You go back to 1973. The American Psychiatric Institute said that if you are gay or lesbian, you had a mental health disorder. You were labeled as having a psychiatric problem. Ed did not run for mayor at that point. He had been elected to Congress. He kept his powder dry and then went at it in 77. Attacked viciously for being gay. Even though he had never acknowledged that, you couldn't back then. You were dead on arrival. Right. Different times It from now. didn't matter. You could have been a Kennedy. It didn't matter. You were dead on arrival politically. Absolutely. And how can we ever forget what the Cuomo's did to him in that campaign, in the runoff to become mayor of the city of New York in 77? He was the law and order candidate. The liberal with sanity. Remember, he, goes, mm-hmm. he was the law and order candidate. And the Cuomo said there's only one way to take this guy out. We got to plaster up every poster and every one of the corners of the five boroughs. Vote for Cuomo, not the homo. His numbers dropped like a rock. He knew. He said to his campaign manager, David Garth, it's over. Even though I've never acknowledged this, it's over. They painted me. David Garth said, hold on. I got one favor here. From Queen Esther, a.k.a. Bess Meyerson, <laughs> the former Miss America, first Jewish America, Miss America ever. Every booby, every Zeta, every Jewish mother wanted her son or grandson to marry uh, Bess Meyerson. And they hooked up together on the campaign trail. And it looked like there might be a wedding at Gracie Mansion. And he came from from the jaws of defeat. He beat Cuomo. And became mayor of the city of New York. Never once admitted he was gay. There were rumors galore. He beat Carmine DeSapio, who was the head of Tammany Hall, who was with Frank Costello, the head of organized crime. You know they did a deep dive on Ed Koch because they ran every gay bar in the village. And so they knew who the clientele were. But he kept it closeted. He never went to the gay bars. He never was seen in public with a man in a, uh, a companionship role. But But here's the problem that I have. In in all the years that I knew him, I never, privately I'm talking about, never was exposed to a lover or even a, a the rumor of a romantic in, interest. None of that ever happened. It was just Ed Koch, the straight guy. Um, and we would talk about many things, Curtis, as, 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 as you and I do. I mean, for example... I can't see a scenario where if you were if you were gay that I wouldn't know it. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I, or, or vice versa. If I were gay, I think you would definitely know it. Damn as, right, I know as it. Long, as long as we've known each other. Yes. You know? 
and that was my relationship with Ed Koch. And 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 I, and I saw him privately more than I saw him publicly. Right. And and you hosted the New York One at the time, right. the Wise Guys, the right. most That's popular weekly That's program. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, they featured Ed Koch. Uh, you had the personal relationship with Ed Koch. And then to see a tabloid story above the fold in the New York Times, the secrets of Ed Koch. He wasn't gay enough, and he was a self-hating gay. What the hell is this? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It makes me wonder, to be honest with you, if a deal may have been cut when he was still alive, that the Times wouldn't go with the story until X amount of years after his death. There's no other rationale. Well, there's or nobody this. who had more reason to hate Ed Koch than me. I kept getting locked up because <laughs> his administration would say, lock him up, like, and they did. And, and, and But I do want to say this. The reason why I never asked him directly about his sexual orientation is I saw him respond. I don't know if you ever did. I saw him respond when somebody would ask that question. Yeah. Ooh, it was brutal. The vulgar language that Koch, he would say things I can't say exactly. Right. But he, 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 look, you know look, what I'm trying to Dominic, say. The, look at the time. If he even hesitated, he was dead politically at that time. People don't Absolutely. understand that. Absolutely. Nobody came out of the closet at that time. No. In this New York City environment where it wasn't the conservatives who would do you in. It was your fellow liberals and progressives. Yep. Wow. Well, you remained a good friend. I give you credit. You did not become an Ides of March backstabber like Carolyn Maloney. And I never would. Hakeem Jeffries. And I never would stab him in the back like that. Great men. Remember them. Confront them about it.